Okay, welcome to another episode of the Edlo Podcast. If I'm not mistaken, I became an attorney, so I didn't have to do math, but I'm pretty sure this is my 30th interview, and you, I'm very excited, Danny, to have you come on, because I have, I don't know if you've known, you knew this really, we've, we've known each other generally, tangentially for probably 15, 20 years, uh, yeah. over the, over the course of time, and but I have been watching you probably since I think the it was right around I, I don't remember which anniversary show, but I uh, well I was watching your friend a flock a loco <laughs> yeah and and, mine, yeah. and I got to tell you I was at uh, an SPW anniversary show at the Colonial Theater the main event mm-hmm. was a death match between. Uh, a, Luster and uh, Beto's Cruz make um, Mike Rain and uh, and Dante. He was Dante at the time. CJ. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. but there was uh, a a tag match, mm-hmm. and it was it was uh, Big Ugly and Handsome Jack Dalton mm. against El Flaco Loco and a mystery partner. And the mystery partner was like this chicken lucha libre guy, and. And, yeah. and 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 I remember the match, and I remember everyone was responding to El Flaco Loco so well. Even like they, did, SPW had done like these, uh, you know, intro promos on a big screen mm-hmm. for the show. And yeah, everybody. yeah. And yeah. even and, and the the two promos that everybody, you know, at an indie show, it's hard to get indie re- wrestling fans to kind of yeah. get into it. Mm-hmm. The crowd went wild when Handsome Jack Dalton and Gabe and, and Big Ugly came out of a car and started a promo, and everyone went crazy. And then when El Flaco Loco came on, everyone went crazy too. And that was the match that everyone went nuts for. And, yeah, and, and since I, that, then, yeah, that like, may have been either the second or third anniversary show because it was uh, pro- it was it was probably two thousand three. Okay, then that may have been the third. That may have been the third because because yeah. SPW uh, back then that that era of SPW only ran at the theater for about four, maybe yeah, four or five years. I think four years because then um, management at the theater at the that the management at the theater at that time didn't want to have professional wrestling there anymore, and so um, uh, I helped uh, Big Ugly find a new venue which was my old elementary school, St. Peter's, which is no longer there. I mean, the, the building's there, but it's no longer an elementary school. And so then we did shows there for a number of years. And then, and then you know, the uh, power was transitioned to the next uh, regime of Supreme Pro Wrestling. And they, they stayed there at, the, at, the, at that hall for a while. And then they moved. They're in Elk Grove now at uh, yeah. an indoor soccer, indoor soccer. But yeah, that was a... You know, what's different is like independent wrestling fans back then are so different than, in my opinion, are so different than independent wrestling fans now. Um, I think, in my opinion, the type of fan you were back then going to those shows are the types of fans that I that I love seeing at shows now. Fans that you'll see at Action Coast, fans that you'll see at, at Total Wrestling uh, Federation, because I, I'm always I'm always put off when I see these 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 people who show up to independent wrestling shows only if there's a big name, a, right. a big independent name on it, and, you know, and, and it's right. like, 
wait, why aren't you coming to some of the smaller shows, some of the more independent right. shows, the real independent shows, not the ones right. that are just bringing in the big names and flying them in and, and yada, yada, yada. You know, there's that, there's that sector of fans that only come out if they know who's on the show. Whereas back then, it was just us. We weren't, yeah. you know, Big Ugly wasn't, you know, paying $1,000 to fly someone in. It was just the, the, home, the homegrown crew of wrestlers. Um, the furthest were coming from Fresno, and that's where you had uh, C.J. Kerr's back then wrestling as Dante. You had uh, Professor Poindexter, Bulldog Brian Raymond, uh, all these guys who trained um, in Fresno uh, making their way up. We, had, uh, we were getting some wrestlers from Reno, like a very young Adam Thornstow, a pre-tattooed Adam Thornstow. Yeah, and, I remember and, that. And Luster, I think, I think Luster maybe had a tattoo at the time. <laughs> but I mean, very, very. Young. I mean, that's how that's how early it was. And but that was the furthest. And these guys were were driving themselves there. And uh, so it was a different it was a different vibe back then. And it really was a uh, an us against the world kind of vibe that that gave uh, Big Ugly really uh, managed to put together there at the theater. And it was a, it was a special time, special time of my life. And uh, I'll never forget. Uh, all of the all of the shows that we had there, and I told this story before of how we would have these shows on a Saturday, and then on Sunday I would meet uh, the Big Ugly early in the morning, and we would have a, a, a bucket, some rags, and some cleaner, and we would have to clean blood off of the walls and uh, <laughs> off the floors, and just basically scrub everything down um, because it was you know we wanted to do another show there. Yeah. You know, so they're like, so we had to go back in and, and clean things up. And, you know, back then it was like, oh, I got to go clean up the theater. And, oh, this is gross, wiping blood off the walls. So, but, but now looking back, you know, everything's so, so much more romantic as you as you look back on it. It was yeah. like, oh, remember when we used to go scrub the blood off the walls the day yeah. after a show? And it was just like, <laughs> it, was a, it was a special time. And, you know, I just, I love it. I'm glad you were at that show. That was, that was, uh, oh, El, El, uh, what was his, Pollo... Pollo Diablo, yeah, that might Devil, have been it. Devil Chicken, yeah. yeah. He 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 came from because um, there were a couple of wrestlers who were wrestling with that gimmick. He came from Southern California, so every now and then we did get these wrestlers who came up from Southern California because they heard about this this promotion that was kind of doing you know kind of at the time no one else was really doing the the the, the hardcore wrestling. And, yeah. and and Big Ugly was a huge fan of that. And, um, I mean, we had some pretty crazy matches. We had a, remember, a Taipei death match where the wrestlers put their hands in glue and then put them in broken glass and punched each other with the match. Yeah. I, mean, I think I saw that back, one, too. That yeah. Was, that, that was rough. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, and that, once again, that was Handsome Jack Dalton and, and I think CJ Kurz or, or Dante back then. And that, yeah. yeah. That was the first pretty, time. Yeah, Dante. Dante did a lot of crazy stuff, but yeah, man. he he did a lot of crazy stuff. Now he's doing crazier stuff. I don't know if you follow uh, CJ now. He does the strongman. Uh, yeah, I saw that. I saw and that. So like, he, every now and then it's cool. Every now and then I he'll come back into the wrestling ring, but it just blows me away. I'll see this guy, you know, lifting a big, you know, giant boulder that's like three hundred pounds and tossing <laughs> yeah. it, and like, yeah, only. Only CJ, only CJ. Yeah, yeah, he's a funny guy. So I, I don't know if I've ever told you my connection to SPW, but what hmm. my um, so Rich Roby, who was running the place before, yeah. Before, and I don't know when did you 
what year did you kind of come into SPW? I got involved on their third show. I went okay. to the, so I, so I remember Rich Roby and Mark Tornator and, um, and they're the one they brought me in. Um, I went to the very first show. Uh, it was called Sacramento Pro Wrestling. Yeah, I was on that show. I wrestled on that show. I remember. I remember. <laughs> I went to that show because I was because I, I grew up in that neighborhood, and uh-huh. that theater. I used to go see Cantinflas um, films in that theater. It was mm-hmm. kind of like the 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 Mexican Charlie Chaplin kind of uh-huh. you know and um, and Buster Keaton type of uh, comedian. And so I used to see uh, uh, old movies there as a kid, and. I was so excited when I saw wrestling on the marquee, you know, growing up loving wrestling and it's in my neighborhood and I remember going to see it. And, uh, and it was, it was off. It was, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was rough. It was, it, it wasn't this smooth running show that went right on time. I remember the show started late. The show yeah. was like, the, it had yeah. a set time of like, I want to say like seven o'clock and it's like seven thirty, and the show had to start. But there was it that appeal to the the punk rock side of me that was like I like it. There's some rough edges here. It's you know this yeah. this is this is real to me. This is like down to earth. And um, and then I went to the I think the second show was called Supreme Pro Wrestling, and um, I was doing I was involved with a, a wrestling promotion called Incredibly Strange Wrestling in San mm-hmm. Francisco, and mm-hmm. uh, we were wrestling um, like at the Fillmore. There would be like a band wrestling a band wrestling and then a band and um no one was trained <laughs> no one was yeah. trained and <laughs> we all had crazy wild gimmicks and and when you walked into the theater you got a stack of corn tortillas and you would throw them at the wrestlers so the hmm. wrestlers would just be covered we'd be we'd be quote unquote wrestling in this corn tortilla covered ring slipping and falling all over the place it would take like a week to wash that cornmeal out of your wrestling gear. But, but I was, and I, I use it in quotations because I wasn't trained in, mm-hmm. you know, I was, so I was wrestling in front of over a thousand people going crazy. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, this is amazing. So I put, I remember putting together a tape and at that, that second show, I kind of, kind of judging, okay, who's kind of in charge. And it, and it kind of, it kind of seemed like there was this guy named the big ugly. Who, yeah. I, there was something. There was something that he had. A, a, there was an. There was an aura about him. Like, this is the guy who's in charge. Yeah. And so I remember getting a tape to him. I say, "Hey, introduce myself. Hey, my name is Danny. This is what I do." And I and I gave him the tape. And I'm expecting him to just like roll out the red carpet and say, "Please come in, take you know, because I'm gonna." It's this tape of me having these wrestling matches in front of a thousand people at the Fillmore with tortillas flying everywhere and crazy gimmicks. And uh, his response was, um, "You're horrible as a wrestler, but you're good on the mic. I'll tr- and I'll, but you're pretty good on the mic, so I'll, I'll train you if you want." And that was nice. not the reaction I was expect. I was not expecting to hear how bad I was. I was expecting uh-huh. to hear how great I was. I was, you know, I was like, "Please uh-huh. tell me how fantastic." And and but he gave me a, a great dose of reality. And um, there was something about that, you know. I've got this thing where I'm wrestling in front of a thousand people. The huge, huge shows. And but then there's this small, independent, rough, rough on the rough around the corners, you know, rough, you know, punk rock type of uh, promotion in my own hometown. And I was drawn to that. I was like, 
I want to do this one. I want to do the one that's not the big production and with thousands of people and all that. This I want to do this this small, homegrown, rough around the corners type of type of product. And um, so then I started training with Gabe and um, uh, originally started training in uh, Stockton because he was running his wrestling school in Stockton. And uh, the deal was he was training these students in Stockton who owned a ring. And the deal was he would train them if they would bring the ring for his shows. And so that was kind of the, the, the deal that they had there. And so I was paying, I was paying the people who owned the ring, uh, which was uh, back then they were called RPW revolutionary pro wrestling. I was paying them. Yeah. Dave Touchstone. And, um, who would be a great guest. He's hilarious. He's a stand-up comedian. I love him. And, uh, and so I, I started training uh, through them, and, uh, and it was great. I loved that experience. It was this musty old warehouse that reminds me so much of where Next Level Pro Wrestling trains right mm. now. Just this, mm-hmm. this, this old warehouse on the, on the wrong side of the tracks, and right. uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of great things happening in there. And um, there's so much about the warehouse where Next Level trains and where Next Level runs shows that reminds me of that old warehouse where I started training with, with the big ugly and Dave touchstone and all these other, all these other wrestlers like Jesus, the Brown snake Cruz and El Pachuco and Mr. GSWA, baby Ray and Joe average and wicked and all these guys from the early days of SPW. And there's, that's why I, I, I fell in love with next level because it reminds me so much of that. It's so funny you bring up. It's so funny you bringing up all those names because they just bring so much memory. So my, yeah. my, my small part of SPW was I was running a backyard fed called SWF, right? And mm-hmm. I had yeah. been getting on all over the TV, all of, all the news stations, because mm-hmm. backyard wrestling was huge back then, you know? Yeah. And so Rich calls me up because Rich had no idea what he was doing either, right? He just wanted yeah. to get into wrestling. So he calls yeah, yeah. me and he goes, hey, you're, you know, why don't you come work with me? And I'd had other promoters call me mm-hmm. and just they mm-hmm. they knew i could get tv cameras so they would call me yeah. but they weren't really serious yeah so he he go, i go how do i know that you're legit and he goes mm-hmm. meet me at this address and it was the colonial theater and he goes i want to put wrestling in here once a month and i go okay and he goes and i want you to run it and i said i don't i had only trained for two months i trained with mm-hmm. oliver john and I trained at Pro I Am. At Pro I Am, yeah. So that's that's awesome. funny that you bring up you bring up Next Level. That's right down the street from where Pro I Am. Yeah, was. it's right around the. I I, I remember going to um, a, a, we just this 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 conversation just we, keeps going backwards and backwards in yeah. time. <laughs> I used to work at a video store called Cinemania, oh, and nice. uh, we specialized in B movies and horror movies and martial arts. And we had a wrestling section and they let me curate our wrestling video section. And they, there was basically this warehouse where you can get old VH, you can, you can buy all the old VHS tapes from other video stores that they got rid of. And then, so we'd buy them and then we'd rent them out. And we had, we had one of the bigger wrestling selections in Sacramento. And so yes. I kind of prided myself in that. And there was one customer who would come in, a really big guy. And he was a big fan. He's like, oh, my gosh, you have, you have this wrestling. You have this wrestling movie. You have this, you have this pay-per-view. You have all these papers. And then he started telling me about where he was training. And he told me about Pro I Am. And uh, I, remember, um, I remember the business card he gave me. And I went to go visit them just to go see what it was. Because was, this is like right before I started getting involved with Incredibly Strange Wrestling. I wanted to see you know, 
what's what's this like? And I remember meeting um, I remember meeting Oliver John. He was in the ring working with with a few wrestlers. You might have been in there because there yeah, might have been one of them. There's about five or six guys there. But uh, the uh, the gentleman who uh, who I uh, was introduced to was uh, uh, what's Paul was Paul the, DeMarco? Yeah, Paul DeMarco. Paul yeah. DeMarco. I met. But like uh, you can kind of tell, Paul DeMarco's like he wasn't really involved in the training. He was just he was there. Paul DeMarco has done so much in pro wrestling. I mean, he is right. he is California wrestling history. Right. But he is a, he. I remember him showing me this lampshade that he he was like into making yeah. lamps and lampshades. <laughs> yeah. It's like oh, you got to check out this lamp. And I'm like looking at you guys flying around the wrestling room. Uh huh. Uh-huh, yeah. And he's like, yeah, look at this lampshade that I was making. I don't know if you remember, he was like into making lampshades or. Yeah, he was into a lot of sort of weird stuff. And yeah. and so he was all interested in telling me about that. And then um, and I remember meeting Ollie Oliver John, and but he was the one running the training, and um, I just went there once, and um, it was so, to me at the time, it was so big, and I felt so tiny. And I was right. like, "There's no way. I, there's no way I can do this. There's no." Way. Um, and I and I never went back. But I always wonder. It's like, oh, what if I just went back done it? and, yeah. and worked with worked with Oliver? And then you know, where, where could that have taken me then? But yeah, yeah so it's like, and that's literally right around the corner from where Next Level is right now. So yeah, and that's that's why that's where I met Justin. You know, I, mm-hmm. I met him because he trained at Pro AM for a while. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that's where I met him. We kind of started. I think we started right around the same time. I can't remember which one of yeah. us came in there first, but mm-hmm. you obviously weren't there on the day when Tom Bocci was there because Tom Bocci was there and he was about 12 years old when he was training oh. and he was so <laughs> tiny. And, uh, um, but, uh, but anyway, um, so, so, so I was like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing. Like I, I do a backyard show. Sure. But I don't know, mm-hmm. like, this is like real wrestling. You know what I yeah. mean? And, yeah. And so, so I knew um, Hustler, and I knew Big the Money. Eight Ball Posse. Yeah, I knew the Eight Ball <laughs> Posse because they had kind of recruited me. Uh, well, they saw my wrestling stuff, and they wanted me to come work a show that Warpath was putting on. And so, mm. so I knew them, and and I had gone down to Hard Times and talked to them a few times. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. so I got rich involved with with Hustler, and then Hustler introduced him to Cooley, and I was like, oh. That's not, <laughs> I was like, whoops, <laughs> you know? And so, but the funny thing about that was, so I'm the one who found RPW online because I, we were looking for a ring and I didn't have one. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I saw RPW and I'd had another guy one time in Modesto say he had a ring and I went there and it was not a ring. And, oh, okay. and so I emailed him, I, do you have a ring? Because if you have a legitimate ring, I want to talk to you about, putting together like a business arrangement type thing. Okay. okay. And it was Dave Touchstone. And, t- and he goes, yes, I have an actual real ring. And I said, okay, so I'm bringing guys down to see you. These are real wrestlers. So if you're mm-hmm. not telling me the truth, they're going to be yeah. really mad at me. So please. <laughs> and so he's like, no, I do. And we walked in. It was me and Cooley, a friend of mine, Gil, who wrestled with me, and Hustler and uh, Big Money. And we yeah. all went down there. And that's where I met Jesus. Cruz, mm-hmm. Wicked yeah. was there. Dave Touchstone, Baby Ray. Baby Ray was my. Fi- I thought of all the guys there watching him work. I was like, that's the guy that's going to make it farthest. Mister GSWA, Baby Ray. He and Ray was such a such a great guy. Such, he really I think was. He is he really? He, he's still with us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, man, he was 
such an amazing worker. But he was like the one who's like, yeah, we're just, you watch him in the ring, was like, yeah, we're kind of not on the same level as him. Yeah, he's he's yeah. right up there. He was something that, and you know, and who knows? It's like the, the, the landscape of independent wrestling was so different in around 2000 than it is now. And yeah. if Mr. GSWA, Baby Ray was at the age and the, the, the level where he was back then, today, He'd probably be one of those guys who was wrestling on AEW Dark. Yeah, uh, oh, no joke. He, one. He, he, would be, he would be on these West Coast shows that are bringing in all the big names. That, that, that's, in my opinion, yeah. that's, that's the level that Mr. GSWA Baby Ray was at. I, was, I, I, remember, was I remember him coming. He put on his, he put on his singlet. Mm-hmm. And because, mm-hmm. uh, oh, let me, so, so with that, Rich was like, well, how are we going to get the ring up there? And so yeah. I said, I talked to the guys and they'd never done any shows ever. And mm-hmm. Hustler and Cooley and those guys went in there and started training them a little bit, showing them some stuff. So they had a deal. They were like, well, we'll come and do it if we get to be on the show. And of course, Rich mm-hmm. is like, yeah, okay, we'll do that. And I pitched, I said, well, why don't we do this? I'll pay for the U-Haul, but we need to do, because uh, I was doing monthly backyard shows and drawing like two, yeah. 250, right? I was drawing big, big numbers. Without a backyard. ring? Without a Without ring. A ring? Wow. Without a ring. Yeah. So, in fact, most of the guys, most of the people said they liked it better without the ring, which was interesting. <laughs> so, but anyway, so we, uh, so I said, I want to do a show with a ring at night. We'll book all your guys on the show. We'll put the show together. My guys, your guys. We'll do a Battle Royal too. And mm-hmm. we did. And they, so the, the night before the first SPW show, I did a backyard show. Cops may have been called, but we, we, uh, <laughs> But um, so, and I think he's okay with me say, sharing this now. It's a different landscape, but that is where I met Big Ugly. Big Ugly's first match was in my backyard, and his second match was in SPW. He says his first match was in SPW, but his first match was actually in my backyard. And Wasn't he, that he showed up with the the Hit Squad, right? Yeah, he did. That and was, I'll tell you, that was, that, but the thing that was funny about that was so. You know, we're all we're all backyarders. I mean, I was the most yeah, trained yeah. of everybody, right? And yeah, I yeah. and I was not anywhere near, you know, ready. I would just mm-hmm. get bookings because I'm six foot seven, I'm gigantic. So people, you yeah, know, I don't have to do much. Yeah. But but he got in there and he did this he did a blockbuster off the top off the top rope on this guy. And when he hit that, I was like me and my buddy Gil looked at each other and were like, that guy actually he's a wrestler. He's he's yeah. legit, you know? And yeah. And so, and then we did the show. I ended up working that show, Big Money. Uh, mm-hmm. And then Ugly worked. I can't remember the guy's name, but he kind of looked like a combination between Hawk and Draws. Uh, he wore like a big fancy, like big hat, and he kind of painted his face like a road warrior. I was uh, Kid Looney. That's it, Kid Looney. That's Kid who it Looney. was. Yeah. And it was, and the only guys that came up for Fresno from that show was that, and it was Dante versus Professor Poindexter. And I remember being my, one guy. of my favorite gimmicks, by the way. Professor it was Poindexter. so good. One of my favorite. He, it was so yeah. good. Oh, mm-hmm. it was so good. And, uh, and we had some APW guys there, too. Mm-hmm. But I distinctly mm-hmm. remember. Uh, well, I remember t- both of the matches for different reasons. I remember Ugly and Looney going out there and they just tore the house down. I mean, yeah. they just tore the house down. It was a completely different level of anything else that was on the show. Yeah. And then, um, 
And then uh, uh, Poindexter and Tante, the reason I remember that one was because Cooley did not like that the Fresno guys were there. He wanted yeah. just, he just wanted his guys there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look, Ugly was jacked, you know, yeah. and, and so was Kid Looney. He was pretty good, yeah. looked pretty good. Yeah, Looney and, was a pretty good guy. Yeah, and, and, you know, other than Warpath and Hustler, the rest of them didn't look like that. And Cooley yeah. could kind of see the writing on the wall. Right. He wanted to keep the power. He was the booker. So yeah. he Dante's work in his match with Poindexter and it's every all of their first match. And mm -hmm. two minutes in, he's calling he's calling for the you know, he's waving the pencil. Right. Mm -hmm. So so Dante just didn't listen. And he just he kept working. He worked. At, I think it was a 15 minute match. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, we're all back there. I'm like, all right, well. <laughs> <laughs> but the match was great. It was fantastic. And well, well, because because uh, Looney, Ugly, Poindexter, and C.J. Dante, they all trained under Brian Ward in Fresno. Yeah. Uh, Brian Ward, who is a, a Heart Dungeon graduate, so, right? Uh, so, so they're all you know. So they all were very familiar with one another, and um, you know, and not to, not to take away from anything that they did in the match, but. They had that opportunity if they were training together, you know, Ugly and Looney would drive down. They were, uh, I want to say maybe Looney was Bay Area and Ugly was West Sacramento and they would drive down to Fresno and train and and CJ and and Poindexter uh, were both lived in Fresno and they trained. And so they had an opportunity to, to, to get a feel for each other in the ring and, and you know, not necessarily can out anything that they're going to do, but to, to be familiar with one another in the ring. I think that was super important. I think that's one of the best things about training is getting that opportunity to work with other people. Yeah, well, they 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 were great. They did a great yeah. job. But when they came back, Dante, you know, he uh, uh, Cooley, you know, Cooley didn't cause a scene or nothing, but he just said something, which I think he was right. You know, he said, "Hey, look, uh, I understand that this was your first match, but just." When a booker tells you to go home, you go home. Yeah. And Don, yeah, Dante yeah. did not respond. Dante responded as a Dante would. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and he got he got tossed out. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and Ugly was like, yeah, you should probably go home, you know. And he did. And then they tried to kick Ugly out, and Ugly's like, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere, <laughs> you know. And, yeah. he didn't, yeah. and he didn't leave. And so there were, yeah. And so that that was my experience with with all the, my first experience with all of them. Yeah. You know, I came back, so I, I left on a mission. I was there for two more shows, and then, mm -hmm. I, and then I went on a mission, and I came back two years later, and then mm -hmm. that's when I had heard Ro Rich passed away, yeah. and, um, and they, Ugly had the book, and Ugly, you know, and, I, and looking back now, I, he, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever talked about this with Gabe too much, but, like, he really rubbed me the wrong way when I came back, and uh but but looking back i realized he was under a lot of pressure from like apw yeah. and there was a big kind of mm -hmm. everyone was calling them backyarders and all this stuff yeah. i was a literal backyarder you know what i mean mm -hmm. so he probably didn't want me around much because that's what my view was but i yeah. remember i remember going to the show those shows uh and there was a legit feel at that time in spw where i remember thinking to myself i'm like you know if they just if you know, this has the possibility of getting really big, um, mm -hmm. you know, and it, all the workers were so good. You know what I mean? Like it was the, it, from 2000 when I saw it where the workers 
were so there was a there was a big difference between guys like Hustler and Big Money who'd been around a long time and they could mm-hmm. work, and these younger guys. Mm-hmm. It it I could see that we were on the cusp of a really great, like a really great scene, you know. Yeah, and and uh, keep in mind that this is also before social media. Yeah, you know. All that, as far as the internet was concerned, if there was board host, yet there were message boards. Yeah. And um, and if you had a website, and if someone had internet, dial up internet, they can go to said website. But prior to that, it was it was handbills, you know, yeah. sticking a flyer in someone's hand, word of yeah. mouth. Um, I and I remember um, the locker room was interesting because you had your section of the locker room that was the big money the hustlers and the war paths and you know, the eight ball posse. And then everyone else was in a, was, was down the hall in another area. And it's not like, it's not like there was any friction in between you, but I, but I, but I remember how big money in particular was always willing to pass on the knowledge and pass yeah. on the advice. And he was the one that would always say, Hey man, you got to slow down. Don't do too much. And it's like, Hey, you gotta, maybe don't, talk so often when you're out there, you know, when yeah. you're out there and you're not in the match. Don't, and so he was, I always appreciated Bill for that. Uh, he was definitely one that was willing to, to cross that bridge to talk to the younger guys. And not that the other ones were standoffish, but, you know, we weren't really the kind that would reach out and say, Hey, can you give me some advice? You know, I, I, we, I never, I never approached Warpath and said, Hey, can you watch my match and give me some advice? Or I never approached uh, Hustler or any of those guys. Yeah. Um, but Bill would always come forward and say, Hey, let me tell you what you should try next time. Let me tell yeah. and, and, you know, and then we're young and dumb and so like, oh, we don't want to listen to anyone and whatnot. But, but it was really important that looking back, I'm like, I want to be like, like Bill. Yeah. I'm at the point where it's like, I want to, sometimes the, the younger wrestlers aren't going to come to me. And it's like, I don't do much, you know? So mm-hmm. they, they, they may not feel comfortable coming to me or feel like they need to come to me. But if I can, if I can approach one of the younger guys and say, Hey, maybe try this or try that, you know, whether it garners a reaction or not, maybe years, years from now, they'll be feeling the same way I feel about big money towards yeah. me, which is, that, yeah. which is a really special thing. You know, it's like, I don't know if Bill knows that, you know, 20 years later, I'd still remember him reaching out and, and offering advice and, 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 uh, and, and how important that was, how, how special that was. And, you know, I, you know, guys like Bill Monroe, Rich Roby, those are names that don't get mentioned very often. You know, we no. talk about the history and the lineage of, of California wrestling. You know, we mentioned Paul DeMarco, or I brain farted. I couldn't remember Paul DeMarco, but it's like, right. that's one of the guys that we need to know about. Paul DeMarco was so pivotal in helping develop wrestlers in our, in our, in our uh, local independent scene. But then a guy like Rich Roby, you know, for, for years after, after he passed, we had the Rich Roby Cup, which was a battle royal mm-hmm. that we would have at the anniversary. And then that kind of faded away. And that, that made me really sad that, you know, Rich Roby was, a, was a, an important part of my involvement in, in my local wrestling scene. And uh, Rich, Rich uh, Roby was the guy, the first guy who gave me an actual shot of being mm-hmm. a legit. I mean, he put me, he put me in a match with Hustler for the SPW championship match yeah. two. And it was yeah. like, I was not ready for that. And Hustler was not yeah. happy about that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, but like, 
I, I shouldn't say that. He actually, after the match, had a lot of great things to say. And so did, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's the thing. Like, these guys, you're right. Like, Rich Roby, SPW doesn't really happen in the way that it happened without him. And uh, No, without and, Rich and, or Mark. Without Rich or Mark or 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 and or any of the any of the guys who like like you yeah. like you were saying and it was that genesis of of that of that of that era that was so important and it was so vital and it really wasn't us against the world and the, and the landscape of independent wrestling in my opinion was so different back and right mm-hmm. now you've got people working together you yeah. know we've got what like. 10 different promotions in Sacramento and they all share yeah. the same roster pretty much. Right. But back then, no one really, no one really worked together. I mean, we yeah. definitely didn't work together with APW. Right. It was, it was, I mean, it was, APW was, was up here. They were the upper echelon and they made sure to let everyone know. And you had, you had, S, you had uh, SPW and RPW and NAW kind of, kind of working together you know rpw mm-hmm. did shows in stockton spw did shows at the colonial theater and we kind of worked together and then um and then this new promotion showed up in yuba city called pcw mm-hmm. and um and there were other promotions here or there you had uh, twf um you know who, i've and i always loved twf even before they had a wrestling ring when they were right. when they they started in uh was it 98 they started yeah. in '98, and they were on they were on TV. They you know they they were doing the yeah, cable access, access thing. And, yeah, yeah. And Jake Jake is another one. It's like that guy doesn't get a tenth of the credit he deserves for everything he's done for wrestling. Right. And the fact that he's at the level where he's at now that you know he and and to me it's such a beautiful story where that's where he's at the he's at the Colonial Theater and the vibe in the locker room at the at those shows I mean TWF reminds me so much of 2000 colonial mm. theater wrestling yeah. shows. It's the same vibe. And I remember the first, the first, um, the first TWF show I was, I was, uh, I was at and I was back in the locker room and I just got this overwhelming wave of nostalgia. I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's like, I get to go back in the back in the day and, and relive everything and relive that vibe and that attitude that us against the world kind of mm-hmm. kind of vibe that that I fell in love with when I when yeah. I when Gabe brought when Gabe brought me in when I was yeah. working with Gabe and Dave Touchstone and Rich Roby and and it's that same type of vibe with with Jake at TWF yeah. and it's 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 awesome it's absolutely it's awesome cool. it's it's so cool to see him do what I think every because yeah they started out as a backyard fed I remember mm-hmm. they were there I was actually kind of jealous because they had public access I was the mm-hmm. one who I was the one who was getting on all the radio and TV stations. Yeah, but they were they were on TV every week, and so yeah. it was. But he has done with TWF what everyone who ever started a backyard promotion thought that they would love to have done, and actually made mm-hmm. it legit. Yeah, you know, and made it a legit promotion that runs and has a following, and their guys are actually trained and the wrestlers and mm-hmm. and they've. He, they were kind of in 2002, three, even earlier in 2000, they were kind of the laughing stock, you know, like everyone kind of made fun of them. They were, they were, and, 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 you know, and it was, and I, and I sympathized with that because, you know, when I was working with Dave and Dave Touchstone, we were the laughing stock. There was a, there was a group in the Bay area that was laughing and making fun of us, Mm -hmm. but then they started, the buzz started picking up and they're like, oh, but now you want to come. Work you want to come work with us? Yeah, you want to come? You want to come? Yeah. You want to come to the theater? You're, you're hitting up Big Ugly now. You're hitting up Dave Touchstone now. It's right. like when 
you know, you're on the message boards, you're not saying so many nice things about us. Right. And it's kind of, and so like, I've always, it was, it was hard for me to, to join in on that bandwagon of pick of making fun of TWF and making fun mm -hmm. of the backyarders when that's what we were being called by other people. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's kind of like, you know, the, 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 you know, we're being abused, so we're going to abuse someone in, in return. Yeah. But it's like, I didn't want to get yeah. involved in any of that. And I've always thought, you know, it's like, damn it, these guys are having so much fun. How could you not respect it? They're doing it for the right. love. Um, and so the fact that, you know, I think one of my biggest regrets is that it took me so long to hop on to the TWF train with, and because I've always, I've always loved what Jake was doing, even when it was, it was without a ring when they were wrestling in, in, on play structures yeah, in Tracy, when parks. it was, when it was Tracy wrestling federation, I used to yeah. watch that on, and, uh, and he's, and he's still doing it for the love. I mean, he's a one man wrecking crew. He's filming it. He's editing it. He's booking it. He's, he's writing the storylines. He's, he's, he's promoting it. He's doing everything. And I, yeah, it's infectious. And it just, yeah. it's, it's kind of nice to just sit back and just like, be around someone that creative. Yeah, he, no, it's it's amazing what he's done over there. And, yeah. You know, you, you brought up, so you you used to, first of all, you had my dream job. I worked at Blockbuster for a while. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I always loved, I, I told a story when Stephen Kyoto came on, there mm -hmm. was a, across the street from the Blockbuster I worked at was a place called 99 Cent Video Clearance Center in Carmichael. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. they were they were very similar to Cinemania. They they had yeah. all the old stuff. And, man, that's where I ran into. I mean, I saw the, all the trauma movies. I saw mm -hmm. King of Clowns and, yeah. uh, and all of those things. And so um, you, you seem to me as somebody. It's so funny because you're you're a middle school teacher. What, yeah, eight, I teach eighth grade. Yeah, yeah, you teach eighth grade, but then also you are just so into so much counterculture stuff, and it's just so cool. Like, and, and I and I love it. Like, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about like you're you you've been in a punk rock, you know, multiple punk rock bands, right? Yeah, you, yeah. you know, you you've got this friend Del Flaco Loco that that yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Yeah, he's, a good friend of yours. He's a neighbor of mine. Yeah, yeah, and then and then on top of that, you're into like martial arts and 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 horror movies and things like that. Like, mm -hmm. where did all this come from? Um, I think it's just, as a kid, um, I grew up in a very, in a very traditional Mexican Catholic household. Okay. Um, my father, my father was a, a Roman Catholic deacon. Oh, um, wow. I was an, I was an altar boy. You know, mm -hmm. I went to Catholic school. I went to Catholic school and, and so, uh, <laughs> So there's that part of me that wanted to rebel a little bit against that. Right. But I remember as a kid, getting into the horror movies as a kid, I remember Creature Feature with Bob Wilkins. Oh, yeah. And and that would be on really late at night. And I remember specifically, like, after everyone's asleep, sneaking back into the living room, turning on the TV, you know, turning on the TV. It wasn't a remote. Turning on the TV, <laughs> yeah. lowering the volume and, and kind of adjusting it so it was a little darker and watching what I thought were scary movies, but now in retrospect, no, they were just B movies. But yeah. Uh, so I got it. So it was that, that, Ooh, this is taboo. I'm not supposed to be up this late watching movies. So that got me into that. Um, and I prop, and then um, the wrestling side of things, um, especially with the mass wrestling, it was, it was to get in touch with my, with my Mexican culture, because mm. by the time my, my parents are both, uh, they both from Mexico. And my, when my sister was born, she grew up speaking Spanish. And then my brother, oldest brother was born Spanish. And then when my other brother was born Spanish, a little bit of English. 
a number of years later, a surprise came about. Mm. And uh, <laughs> by that time, English was the primary language in my household and my, my family had already been, for lack of a better term, Americanized. Mm. And so I always felt a disconnect to, to my Hispanic, to my Mexican culture. And so that's why I, when I, when I first started, I remember the first time I'd watched wrestling on TV and I was just, oh my gosh, what is this? And the wrestler that stood out to me was Mil Mascaras. And mm. it was the Mexican wrestlers wearing a mask. And so the pageantry and all that, and that drew me in. And, and so that's why I've always, as far as wrestling is concerned, why I've always been drawn towards the mass wrestling and right. the, the history of Lucha Libre. Because that, that part of me that feels insecure about not being super in touch with uh, my Mexican heritage, I feel like this is an avenue where I can get in touch with that and why it's, it's that's so important to me. But as far as the music side of things, it's just, um, you know, just discovering it on my own. I think the thing was no one forced it down my throat. I didn't mm -hmm. have a, an older brother saying, hey, you got to listen to this. You know, mm -hmm. one of my older brothers listened to Queen. Another one of my older brothers listened to Sticks and Rush. My sister mm -hmm. listened to Foreigner and Bread. And then the first time I heard the Ramones, I'm like, oh, this is it. This is what I want. And this is what I love. And so I think what got me into that counterculture was just discovering it on my own. And I think so often now, especially with, I hate to blame things on social media and, and technology, but I think so much is force fed that things aren't discovered the way that they were. Right. Right. I, I remember the moment I discovered wrestling. I remember the moment I first heard the Ramones. I mean, I'd, I'd seen mm. them, but like the first time I really heard it and it hit me, it just hit me like a lightning bolt right to the heart. And so it's the, that, the moment of discovery, the first time I remember that moment of, of watching, you know, a horror movie at late at night when I'm not supposed to be watching the, that, the thrill and the excitement. And so that when you discover it, it's, it's real, it's genuine. And, and in my case so far, it's been lifelong, you know, with punk rock, with horror movies, with, with wrestling and, and that counterculture. And I think that's why I was more attracted to the, the, the rough edge, grungier side of independent wrestling rather than the big thousand people in the Fillmore Theater um, right. side of wrestling. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. It's funny. It's there's a lot of similarity. We have a lot of similarities, and and yeah. I, I I, you know, my uh, I grew up in a in a Mormon household, but uh, okay, my my dad was Jewish and converted over, and wow. it was it was, uh, but it was a long transition from mm -hmm. actually becoming like getting baptized Mormon and then actually really following, and okay. um, and then. And then all of our extended family is either Catholic or Jewish or nothing. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, like I was introduced to a lot of things just because my dad wasn't traditionally Mormon. I think, mm -hmm. uh, I was introduced to a lot of things that Mormon kids normally weren't, you know, he was really mm -hmm. big into music. So I was always listening to the who and listening to, you know, um, he was big into the doobie brothers and stuff like that. And then I started getting into, you know, Guns N' Roses and Metallica. That was kind of my yeah. area, you know, yeah. and uh, and then uh, but yeah, he was the one my my dad and my aunt were the ones who took me to my first wrestling show. And I went to the Arco Arena. My first live show was at the Arco uh -huh. Arena, the British Bulldogs against the Dream Team in a cage. And oh, my gosh. And it was the first time I'd seen anybody bleed. Including mm -hmm. the including the baby faces. Usually it was the yeah. bad guy who was always bleeding. Hogan never bled. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I remember just I lost my voice. I think I was four years old, and oh, uh, screaming for so so long, and I just was immediately hooked. But the movies, I had a couple of friends who in seventh grade, they just were really into B movies and we'd have these sleepovers and they'd be like, yeah, you got to see this. And I was like, what is this? What is this craziness that I'm watching? Uh Like, uh you know, they'd be like, watch this. It's called Surf Nazis Must Die. You'll love it. (laughs) You know, and I'll I'll be like, okay. And we watch it and I'd be like, I don't know what we're watching, but I'm kind of into it. But, yeah. but but I got to ask you, have you seen Velocipastor? I have not seen Velocipastor. Okay. You, sir, need is to go on Amazon Prime. Pastor and Velociraptor? Yes, check this out. It is a oh pastor who turns into a dinosaur and fights crime with a sidekick who is a hooker, but also a pre-med law student. <laughs> and... I got to tell you, I have been begging. I have been sending messages to Brendan Steer, Steer, mm-hmm. who directed this, to come on this podcast, and he has eluded me so far. Because I got to ask how this man came up with this genius idea. It's the great. Of, all right, I, I mean, it's you got to see it. You got to see it. It's on. It's on. If it's still there, it's on Amazon Prime. Okay. And, all right. Right. And, and if and if. That. And if not, I have it on Blu-ray, sir. I will, I will lend you a copy. <laughs> awesome, awesome. <laughs> it, awesome. I have to hit up my. I, I'm. I still keep in touch with uh, my friend RJ, who um, who ran Cinemania. Oh and yeah. He, and so I'll see if I'll see if he's heard of Velocipastor. And oh, I mean, he, you never know. He he was so involved in the in the the B movie scene. He's he uh, he may even know the director of of yeah. that of good film. So he was oh. pretty pretty involved in it. That was yeah, that, that was, sounds that sounds like the type of movie that we would have had there. Like our our horror movies section at Cinema was broken up by director. Oh, our nice. martial arts was broken up by director. That's how extensive it was. Um, wow, it was it was a it was a it was a wild it was a wild time, and uh, we used to do live uh, uh, window displays. Um, I remember the one of the first times my my friend El Flaco Loco was a live window display. And he he uh, had a, a chair, a TV with the videotape playing uh, mass Mexican wrestling, and he was drinking. And he drank a twelve pack of Tecate while eating uh, pork rinds. And and he was in full wrestling gear. And as customers were walking past the window, he would give them the the one fingered salute and upset people. And people were like, "Why is this? Why is this guy wearing a mask and tights and?" And drinking and 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 uh, giving rude gestures to people walking past, and so that's the type of place Cinemania was. And uh, it, it, I mean, if it was around today, it would have been a phenomenon. But back then, it was just like uh, just a video store. It's like I can get it cheaper at Blockbuster, or, yeah, you know, oh, Hollywood Video, and things like that. But yeah, and, and I, that, I that I was. I don't think kids understand how awesome video stores were. They were oh, so and just fun. remember, remember like going into video stores and you'd see the box, and then like. Oh, but there's no video behind it. Yeah, I mean, just out of stock. Yeah, and, and, oh, I, man, I was I trying just, to, I was trying to tell my son and his buddy. He came over and stayed the mm-hmm. night at my place, and I was telling them, I was like, 
Man, our weekend was just we would go to Blockbuster and we would wait for the new release to come through the slot or whatever. Yeah. And then once it did, you were stoked. You'd get a little Caesar's pizza. You'd chow down on pizza and watch your couple of movies. If you were lucky, yep. your mom let you get a video game too. And you just oh, yeah. you know what I mean? And that was your weekend, man. And it was it was great. And yeah. Those were it, it those were the, good times. Yeah, and it's it's kind of you know, and I think I think kids today they have their own thing. The, mm -hmm. of, 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 of socializing and that, that we don't get, that I definitely don't understand. And I've given up trying to understand. As an eighth grade teacher, I'm so comfortable not being able to relate to my, my students and they're comfortable not trying to relate to me. So it's totally fine. But yeah, that, that, that thrill of like, oh, Friday night, we're going to go rent a movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Maybe you can't make that sound cool, but it was the coolest thing. It's like, I know. We're going to get two movies. Yeah. And then we're going to get, yeah, and then the, and the like Little Caesar pizza, and it's like, oh, and then we're going to get the, the big two-liter model of, of you know, oh, Mountain yeah. Dew. And, oh, you'd be up all night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was, that was so <laughs> much fun, and, you know, but it seems like that, that, those experiences that I think that you find in independent wrestling, in independent music, in independent filmmaking, um, mm -hmm. I, I think they're still there. They're just, you know, you just, it just takes a little more time to, to notice it and appreciate it, you know, cause like you're sitting there talking about your first wrestling show. I'm automatically, you know, I, I start thinking, I didn't want to get on. Oh yeah. Well, my first wrestling, but it's like, when you start telling someone about your first wrestling show, automatically they're thinking of their first wrestling show. They're thinking of the first time they saw someone in the first, the first interaction they have with the wrestler. You start talking about music and then you, you start you start con making those connections of those, those, that, that, that in-person, that live experience. And yeah, and to I, me, that's I, why I love what that. I, what I love about, I think my favorite thing about being involved in wrestling mm -hmm. has been that I don't think I would have ever had such a cool, diverse group of friends any mm -hmm. other way. You yeah. know, be, being a Mormon guy from Carmichael, the, the ghettos of Carmichael, California, you know, <laughs> like, I, you know, I, I wouldn't have met like, you know, I had uh, I had Sheik, uh, Dark Sheik on the, the podcast. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't think there's anybody I know more diverse than Dark Sheik being a transgender yeah. woman who runs Hood Slam, you know, mm -hmm. with a Muslim background. I mean, that's yeah, really, you know, that's talk, talk about an uphill talk about someone with an uphill battle yeah. all around and and the, the amount of success she has had not just as uh as just being the the mastermind behind one of the most incredible independent wrestling promotions but as an independent wrestler herself traveling all over and being yeah. in demand and just yeah. what a creative force and you know and it, for those of us yeah. who are lucky enough to to have known her for so many years and seen that transition and how they've just continued to be a force of creativity and a force of positivity as well. Yeah. I mean, and given, yeah, it's so, like, given so many people a chance that otherwise mm -hmm. didn't have them, you know, yeah. I mean, there's a yeah, lot yeah. of, there's a lot of workers out there now who they, they command a high price because of hood slam because yeah, of yeah. What she put exactly. together. But exactly. that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, I remember, I remember when I did, uh, you know, we, for a while we did the stuff, I did some stuff with TNA uh, Impact, mm -hmm. and uh, I was on a tour with them in um, in Washington. Um, and I remember sitting there with a guy, and I was helping out at the end. You know, they used my ring, and and 
um, and I was helping out with the meet and greet in the back. And I was talking to, I think it was Bob Rosen, who, uh, who's the, he's now the ring guy for AEW. Um, but he, we were sitting there talking and, and all these people walked by and they just were so, I was like, you know, I was in law school at the time and had, you know, a bunch of kids and I go, I just, I would not know these people, like all of these people now, we can talk about something and have something in common. There's mm-hmm. nothing else in common we have. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and yet mm-hmm. I can I can sit there for hours and talk about the matches that made me, they, that I remember and things mm-hmm. that are really special to me and they'll and yeah. connect with somebody through mm-hmm. that. And I, and I imagine you feel the same way about mm-hmm. music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's in both in the world of music and world of wrestling, I've had an opportunity to meet tons of people. Um, with music, especially, I've been able to, to tour the U.S. about six times, full U.S. tours, uh, toured Europe twice, um, and and got to, you know, it's like there's definitely played those shows where I'm like, how did I end up here? Yeah. What, you know, um, but then again, the parallels between music and, and, and wrestling on, I, I was at a point in my life where I was playing in one band, we're playing in front of hundreds of people every night and people are going crazy for the shows and yada, yada, yada. But then I started enjoying myself more playing with a, a side project at the time, which is now my, my main band, but it's my side project is, you know, the, the, that, the, the, the intimacy, the, the, the connection I was having with the people I was making music with and that, that, that us against the world kind of, kind of feeling to it. Um, but yeah, music and music and wrestling, it's, it's filled with creative people. Mm-hmm. Um, in my opinion, the, the wrestling side, the people involved with wrestling don't get the credit for the creativity that they, that they have. Um, you know, they, you know, that, just as I'm sure you know, it's like so often people they 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 use the F word when they're talking about wrestling, and so they right. discredit everything that they do, right? You know, because it's you know fake right. or whatever they the whatever mm-hmm. term they want to say, but they would never say that to a Broadway actor, right? They would never say that to someone winning an Academy Award. They would never say that to someone on on stage. Um, they would never discredit what they do or, or take away from any of their creativity, but. Um, but the world of wrestling is just, you know, I'm sitting here in my guitar room and I've got like Bobby Heenan, Ox Baker, Mr. Wrestling too. You know, I've got these posters and the destroyer and I'm like, man, you want to talk about creative people. Yeah. You know, it's like it's yeah, people who've given so much. And it's so, what I also think people don't realize about wrestling is there's so many different styles and mm-hmm. there's so many different things that can elicit emotion. You like know, music. Like yeah. music. Yeah, I mean, I, I like for me personally, rest the wrestling that impresses me the most. Like you watched, we recently had a match on the, in the WWE. Uh, I think it was Elimination Chamber where Sami Zayn worked Roman Reigns, and yeah. and they'd been building that story up for a year and a half. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And they're doing it in Sami Zayn's hometown. You know, mm-hmm. he shows up. And man, they didn't do anything. Like as far as uh, as far as actually moves, yeah, they didn't have to do anything, and the crowd ate it up. 
they had him right there. Yeah, and it's just it to me the you know, you think about like Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant, where these two guys are in front of ninety thousand people. They just got through seeing Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat do a forty-five minute just absolute masterpiece Clinic. of the match. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was just a straight up masterpiece. Crowd's going crazy and they're just as crazy for punches, a body slam, and a leg drop. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's just amazing that that people can that that you can get that much emotion from a story like that. And same same with music. I mean, there are songs where you'll listen to them and you'll just you'll feel sad, you'll feel excited, mm-hmm. you'll want to punch someone in the face. You know, you have all these different yeah. types of music that just elicit so and, much emotion. And in, and in my opinion, it, it takes courage on the side of the audience. To, to allow themselves to get involved with that. To, to me, that's why independent music and independent wrestling shows are so important because it's right there. It's in your face. Um, and, but it takes courage to, to allow yourself to get invested in the story of it. If, if you didn't have the courage to get invested into that story of Sami Zayn and Roman Reigns, you would have been sitting there waiting, when are they going to do a 450? When are we going to see blood? You know, but you're invested in the story. You're invested with every emotion that Sami Zayn's face is emitting. With music, the same way, if you're like, okay, when are you going to do a solo? When are we going to see the guitar go on fire or whatever? But if you're into the, if you're into the the the, the emotion of the music, the power, the drive, it doesn't have to be anything super complicated. Like with me and the Ramones, it was just the drive, the drive and the intensity. It was like a cup of coffee in, in a minute and a half, you know, with, mm-hmm. with that music. Um, I've got, um, there's a, every week I do a, a journal entry with my class and, mm. um, and it's usually based on a Ted talk. Mm. And there's a, the one that we're going to be doing tomorrow. It's about the, the, the power of classical music essentially. Mm. And, 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 you know, he's playing this piece and it's like, you know, it's a beautiful piece, but if you're not into classical, you know, they say, you know, maybe 3% of the public is into classical music, but he, he challenges the listener to listen to this piece differently. But before I play it, I want you to think about someone that you care about who's no longer with us. Hmm. And just, just, just think of them. Think of them. And, just, and that takes a lot of courage. I mean, because you said, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking that. And just play the music. Okay, yeah, I didn't like it. But if you take the time to put yourself into it and you're, you, you put your heart into this, you know, like I thought of my mom mm. and I'm listening to this music and I'm just welling up with tears because I'm able to take my feelings and my emotion and put it into this beautiful piece of classical music. And that takes courage when you take something that's inside of you and you put it into the art that's in front of you, the storytelling of the wrestling, you know, with Hogan and Andre, it's like, as a kid, you grew up and like, these were two giants in wrestling that never, that never had a reason to collide. But then all of a sudden there was this deception and this betrayal from Andre the giant, the, the all time greatest of the good guys betrayed his, the, his, his pupil, his protege. Yeah. And so you have this like, if you got into the story of, of just like, if you've ever been betrayed or if you've ever been had, you know, felt, you know, like you, you were stabbed in the back by someone that you looked up to, you were all about Hulk Hogan finally beating that giant. Um, and, 
but that takes courage to for the audience member to put themselves in the story that's being presented for them. And I think I think wrestling fans who get into it, not the ones who sit there with their arms crossed waiting for the flip. Mm-hmm. Those those wrestling fans irritate me. The ones who the ones who only go to certain wrestling shows when there's a big name and they get they pay the extra money to get the ringside seat and they sit there like this the whole time, leaning back in their chair, waiting to be impressed. Those aren't the fans that I that I, that I really enjoy seeing at shows. I like the ones who are sitting forward. They're they're up. There doesn't matter if there's only ten people in the audience, but they're into it. They're cheering. They're getting into the match. They're they're mm-hmm. booing who they want to boo. They're cheering who they want to boo. That's taking courage on their part to get involved in it. And it's the same thing with music. You, know, you have people at shows who are just sitting there, okay, listening to it. And then you have other people who are really getting into it. They're getting yeah. into the, the, the drive, the passion, the power of whatever music that they're listening to. And so that, that, that TED Talk where he challenges the listener to really, he gives them a, a really simple tool. Think about someone who's no longer here. Mm-hmm. Now listen to this. Yeah. And you can't help but be overrun with emotion. Yeah. Well, man, that sounds awesome. It, you, 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 uh, how long have you been teaching now? Um, I am up, geez, we're looking at 29, 28, Whoa. 29 years. I lose, I lose yeah. track. <laughs> I lose track. I started teaching uh, fresh out of college, uh, okay. pretty much right out of, right out of, fresh cut, right out of college and, uh, yeah, so close. Coming up on thirty years now. Coming up on thirty wow. years. I did. Um, I did day to day substitute teaching in in the public school, and then I got a, a second grade position. I did that for about twelve years or so, and then I did a um, a fourth grade position. Did that for about twelve years or so, and now I'm on my fifth year or so of teaching eighth grade. Wow. And, uh, do you, do you it, like that? I'm still better? a fourth grade teacher. I yeah. I miss fourth grade. I miss fourth grade. Oh, yeah. That's the last. I feel like that's the last year that kids still draw pictures for their teacher. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but what's cool is like um, being the eighth grade teacher. I'm no. I I haven't been the the cool young teacher at my work in the longest time. So there's no pressure of trying to be cool and relating. I love being old and out of touch. You know, I show up in my suspenders and boat. I look like the old guy from the movie Up. Yeah. I wear suspenders with a bow tie and I got my glasses and I always got a coffee mug and I always just look like I, yeah, no, no, not good enough for me. And so I, 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 I like being the grouchy old teacher with, with bad coffee breath. Um, but I love it. I love teaching. I love yeah. teaching. I love, you know, it's like, ideally I'd love to be able to reach all 35 of my students, but I know maybe 32 of them are just like, going through the motions there they see the they see the finish line they see high mm-hmm. school on the horizon so it's it's so hard for them to to get in get motivated to do anything right now sure but, sure but it's cool it's cool to it's cool to just see what that generation has it, you know if if you work with with junior high students you get a chance to see what the future holds and there's some there's some pretty awesome young people out there and then there's, they care about their world. They care about art. They care about being kind. They care, they care about creating and making the world a better place. You know, they're not, they're not as um, pessimistic and lazy as so many people think there were this, yeah. this, this generation coming. I don't know what I was generation X. I don't know what this is. Generation 
whatever. I have no idea. They're not the millennials. Whatever. Gen Z, maybe I don't know. Yeah, Gen Z or whatever. Uh, the, they're. I, it's. I feel pretty good about our future, knowing right. that they're in charge, that they're going right. to be in charge. Right. Well, you know, and that's. Uh, it's it's funny you bring that up because my kids are about that age. You know, I I have a sixteen and a fourteen year old. The fourteen year old wow. is in eighth grade. And yeah. I have uh, I have a, a twelve year old who's in sixth grade, and I have a fourth grade boy who's turning ten in June. And this is That's, this has been my favorite age as a father because they're all becoming real people. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it, I actually just recently said, I think I I might have even said this on Facebook, but I said I wrote this uh, a letter to my daughter, and uh, and I told her I go, you know, when you're a parent. Uh, it's not like you're parenting one person, you know, mm -hmm. you, you're parenting a person, you're, you're one person, but you're a whole bunch of people as you grow yeah. up, you know, you mm -hmm. go, you go from being a baby to a toddler and then you're a young girl and then you're a, a you know, you're an older girl and then a preteen and a teen and eventually mm -hmm. you're going to be an adult. And the thing that's so crazy about it is you, you don't notice the transitions because you're there every day. And yeah. so like so then one day you just wake up and that person that little that little kid that you loved is gone and this other yeah. kid is here yeah. and you never really got a chance to say goodbye to that kid you loved and so yeah. you're sitting here with this one and and luckily luckily i've loved every version of every one of my kids <laughs> oh. you know some more than others but like <laughs> but like you know it's it's just so crazy to sit there and think i was just telling my son he's a junior in high school and i'm like dude you are like you're you got one year and you're you're gone you know what yeah. i mean i i got you you got you and he's a you know he i want you to meet him because he's a he's a uh he's a guitarist he's a lead singer for his band they call themselves twisted youth they just oh nice they, they just debuted at the boardwalk and oh wow uh, what style know, of music do they play they're just playing they're playing covers of rock music so they did like okay they did like a basket case and they did sweet child of mine and a few other okay you know, right. uh, uh the sweater song from weezer well every, every pro wrestler is doing covers of another wrestler's movie that's so, true you that's know true. I, I have it's not like well the, oh they're just covering. no i mean everyone's doing covers even even when we yeah. write our own songs we're just you know every song i write is i'm ripping off the ramones so sure you know, the ripping <laughs> yeah. off the ramones or the misfits so it's, yeah it's, it's all, well, that's awesome though well it's impressive though what i it was funny because he you know, I don't know how much he likes me talking about this stuff, but he he's done like he did like five or six shows mm -hmm. and I I'd started. He didn't want me to go to the first one. He's like, please don't come. And I was like, all right. I and so he was just so worried. And then I, I've seen a few. I saw a couple of them. And boy, man, there was always something that went wrong in every one of the shows. And uh -huh. uh, and uh, the last one he did before this, they really bit it like his guitar wasn't his guitar wasn't something was wrong with his guitar and so they used a guitar that wasn't quite in tune and like and then the drummer was kind of off and it it was like it was bad and i and i told him i was like hey man look even as a wrestler man you have stinkers you know what i mean you yeah. just yeah yeah you know everyone everyone bombs every once in a while and does he know about your history and the diy you know independent of you putting on shows not just being oh, a part of the show but being on the production side does he know how involved you were yeah yeah he was he was uh he was i think he's the only well no the the two older ones remember going to some of the shows okay, okay. funny thing about austin my oldest 
Yeah, I, he'll kill me for saying this, but we did TNA. We did TNA at the Memorial Auditorium. Uh-huh. And he he was probably four. He hadn't okay. really gotten into wrestling yet. Okay. You know, he and so I brought him because I'm like, if when I was four, if I had a chance to hang out with wrestlers like, you know, uh Bubba Ray Dudley and Jeff Hardy oh. and Rob Van Dam, like I would have peed my pants, right? Oh yeah. It's like going to see Santa Claus. Right, right. So he's he's there and I have him there. And it's me and my dad and him. And he has no interest in anything going on. So I just I just give him my phone and he's playing. And Bubba Ray Dudley walks up to him. He's like, hey, kid, how you doing? What are you playing? He doesn't even look up from his phone. He's like, I'm playing Angry Birds. And just doesn't. And Bubba Ray is just like, okay. And he just left. And now he, he looks back and he's like, I was such an idiot. Like, now I would have loved that. You know the I mean? most the most decorated tag team wrestler of all time <laughs> right. came up and was trying to strike up conversation with me. But yeah. I think, yeah, I think, I think that's a cool thing that, you know, you can connect with them on because there's so many similarities of independent music and independent wrestling, you know, that yeah. things don't always go the way they're supposed to go. And, you know, yeah. and it's, and there's those rough edges and, you know, it's like, yeah, we would like the, the big production and the big showiness and the, and the, the shiny, the shininess right. of it all. But, yeah, there's there's a lot of charm and beauty to that the rough edge independent side of both wrestling and music when there's yeah. you know it's it's not all it's not all you know shiny and perfect those rough yeah. edges those imperfections I like that yeah. I like I'm attracted I'm attracted to that and and I'm drawn into that well you know that's what's so funny is that I I think I did share with him the story of working big money and I was like yeah man it was my first match mm-hmm. he was a seasoned vet. And mm-hmm. I crapped the bed, you know, like yeah. I did not do yeah. great. And I go, but you know what? The next match I worked hustler for the, for the championship and it went really well. And so yeah. when we, when we were at the boardwalk, we're waiting for him to go up and he comes up to me. He's like, all right, so you got any motivational, you know, he, I would try to motivate him all the time. So he's like, you uh-huh. got anything motivational to say? And I just looked at him and was like, it's very important that you don't suck today, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And, and you know that's, what? Kind of, that's kind of that's kind of similar to the advice my wife gives me before uh, any performance, whether it's wrestling or music. She, you know, she uses a different phrase, but basically, <laughs> don't blank up. Yeah, and I, and that's, yeah. That's, that's her way of, of wishing me luck. And, and, and so, that, yeah, it's like don't screw up, you know. But she yeah. uses words screw up. You know, she uses yeah. a different word. <laughs> but but I I gotta hand it to him though. He, when they got up on the board at the boardwalk, man, mm-hmm. they killed it. They killed yeah. it. I mean, they had, yeah. he had little groupies coming up and talking to him afterwards <laughs> and all that. I mean, he, you know, he, he's got some talent and, uh, yeah. but, but what was it, when did you start performing in, in music? In music, it was, um, you know, I was always exposed to, to performing music because, uh, once again, growing up in a very traditional Mexican Catholic family, my father, before he became a deacon, he was the, uh, the Spanish singing choir director. Mm. Uh, the quiet, the Spanish choir basically consisted of my father singing, uh, uh, two people playing guitar, and 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 and, and a woman playing maracas. <laughs> that was the choir. That was the Spanish mass choir. But but like Sunday mass was basically us loading the PA in the car. So you know having to do crew road crew every Sunday yeah. mass. So it's like. You know, mass is at twelve thirty, but we got to start loading the car up at eleven to get to the mass. As, as soon as the the mass before us is over, we got to set up, get the PA, do a quick sound check, 
and then then I got to go to the back and put my altar boy uh, robe on. And <laughs> the whole production side of, of, of being a Catholic was, you know, that got me ready for, for music. I remember uh, I learned three chords on the guitar in seventh grade to impress a girl and mm. it didn't work. Then I learned mm. the opening guitar riff to Jesse's girl. Ah. And, and I remember playing it for her and she's like, what was that? I'm like, nothing never mind and i put the guitar away <laughs> i put the guitar away and uh every now and then in high school i'd bring it out but yeah not into mm -hmm. it and then in in, in college when i went to when i was at sac state uh i got involved in the local um in the in the sac state radio station mm -hmm. and and i met a group of djs who were playing music together and so i started they they um they had a band and um one of the DJs was a guitarist and he was like, you know, Steve Vai kind of type mm. of guitarist. Yeah. And, and he, unfortunately, um, he was killed by a drunk driver. Oh, man. And then at the, at the funeral, um, one of the, one of the DJs was talking about their band and, and, um, and how just reminiscing about how much fun it was, you know, they never played shows. They just got together and jammed and all that. And then I remember, talking to them after the after the funeral it's like hey you know I, I have a guitar if you guys ever want to just if you're looking for someone to jam with and and we just started jamming together. i was maybe like 20 years old at the time mm. so i was a late bloomer you know when i hear about you know people getting involved in the music scene now they get started when they're 13 or so and yeah. i'm like i was a late bloomer it wasn't until i was 20 and then we started this band it was we called ourselves the the secretions they already had that band name and uh mm. And, you know, we, it just started up as a group of guys getting together and jamming in a living room. And for 25 years, we were a band and we toured all over the U.S. We had songs in movies. Um, we had, um, we did, made videos. We, we went to Europe. We, you know, toured all over, slept on floors. You know, it sounds like, yeah. sounds like dusty roads for me. I've slept right. on floors and, and, you know, <laughs> wine and dine with kings and queens, but, you know, we slept on, slept on dirty punk rock floors on tours. And we've also got a chance to open up for My Chemical Romance and Papa Roach at Arco Arena. Wow. So, you know, so it's yeah. like getting the, getting that experience was, was fantastic. So that's how I got into that. And, it, you know, and that was a band that lasted 25 years, but, you know, it just, it ran its course and um you know we didn't have a big ugly breakup we just we just always said when it's not fun anymore we'll stop and it got to that point but we were in denial i think we were all in denial for mm -hmm. uh, a few years of just like but you know we're going to keep going because it's successful you know we're playing these shows we're getting these big show offers we play the boardwalk we're headlining the boardwalk and there's hundreds of people there to see us how can you know how can we say we're done right but it just got to the point where it wasn't fun anymore. And it didn't, you know, we, we had grown apart from each other. You know, the, the two of us had been in the band for 25 years. The, the new guy was only in the band for nine years. So yeah. <laughs> that, but that's still a long time. And so right. and the guy who was in the band for nine years, he was the new guy. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's when you've got three people creating and butting heads and you know and i'm i probably wasn't the easiest guy to be in a band with mm. because i had a i'm in charge of this i'm in charge of this you can have this and this you know mm. it's like i was very very much a dictator when it came to that you know and, and looking back i'm like yeah i could have been a lot easier to get along with but i wasn't and um and so we we ended up kind of drifting apart but 
I've played with other bands and, and I had another band called the knockoffs that still play every now and then with some of my best friends. Uh, the moans started off as a little side project and that became my primary band. And I've got, I've had the opportunity to take those guys on the road and we, mm -hmm. we record, we just, uh, let's see if I have it. No, somewhere in here. Uh, we just recorded our, our, uh, our first full length, uh, on vinyl. You know, we, we recorded oh, nice. a couple of CDs, but like that's something on vinyl is a huge deal. So, yeah. Yeah. I so the just, yeah. And I, uh, yeah. So as far as playing in the music scene, probably since 90, 91, mm. I've been wow. involved you know, I did bands with my brother and, uh, that's a hard thing to do to be in a band yeah. with your own family because oh, sure. like I said, you know, I can be a jerk when it comes to being a band, you know, it's, oh, it has to be this way. Shut up. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, it's like, and you can butt but, heads. And so, but those are, so but those that, tend to be when you get it just from what I've heard and what I've seen. I mean, you think about going back to wrestling, like Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels were buttonheads yeah. all the time and had some of the best yeah. matches ever. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes that, that crew breeds a, a different yeah. level of creativity. Yeah. Yeah, but they were also paying, uh, making mortgage payments with what they were doing. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's that's with, a good point. With punk rock, with punk rock, we were we were happy if we were making gas money. You know, yeah. And, and once again, with music and wrestling, you don't you don't make your money off the promoter; you make it at the merchandise table. Right. And uh, right. and so we weren't. You know, it got to the point where it's like, you know, I'm spending weeks. You know, I'm on tour, spending weeks, if not a month, away from from my home and from my wife. And um, just to argue yeah. and just to butt heads and just to be irritated and be irritating, mm. um, you know, it's not worth it. It, it no. wasn't worth it. It's like, I want to, I want to have fun. I want to enjoy what I'm doing. And so, mm. you know, and, and that's not to blame anyone. It's just the way it was, you know, you can't, you can't expect to be in a band for 25 years. That's just making gas money and still, you know, have that same love and passion that, you know, you had, the sure. first time you jam, you know, I'm sure right. it can happen, but it just didn't happen with us. So. Right. Right. Well, and also, you know, I mean, I, I think you're right in the way that, um, you know, I, I, I'm an attorney and I know a lot of attorneys who have made a ton of money, but are mm -hmm. just miserable human beings. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they're just yeah. completely yeah. unhappy doing it. And yeah. luckily I, you know, I have a, a passion for what I do. So it's, yeah. it's easy. And luckily it, it pays well you know so that's nice yeah. but yeah but yeah you know it, it, there is a there is a point where you just have to find something meaningful and if it's yeah. not meaningful anymore you know yeah. you, you move on it sounds like that's well, what and, you I did. Feel, and i feel like that with teaching too it's like uh, yeah. i know a lot of teachers who are miserable and who who just complain the entire time no, no yeah teaching is hard teaching is not you know when um when you're dealing with students who maybe don't realize that you want, you want to see them do better. And they mm -hmm. think that you're just there to make their, their day miserable. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of tough or, you know, when, um, it's, you know, we don't get paid very well, but, uh, but still it's like, it's something I love and I love making that, making that connection in the classroom, whether I, whether I was teaching second grade or teaching fourth grade or eighth grade, it's awesome making that making those connections and and um, and the same thing with music and with wrestling. It's making connections and yeah. um, you know it's like yeah, the money is nice if you can get it, but mm -hmm. um, if you're not making the connections and doing it with people that you that you care about, what's the point? Yeah, you know. And That's with a... with wrestling, 
the group of people that, that I get to work with now uh, through Action Coast, through Total Wrestling Federation, through Next Level, um, uh, Lucha Extreme, uh, Lucha Patron, and um, that group of people, they're just, they're such a, a great positive force of creativity. And, and I, and I, and I, and I enjoy that time. I enjoy, I enjoy getting to spend that time around them. And I always come back, even if I'm beaten and bruised, feeling, you know, spiritually refreshed, just being around these people, the guys that I play music with now with the moans and with the knockoffs, I just, you know, I come back from band practice and just with the biggest smile on my face, because I'm hanging out with the best friends that I have. And, um, and the same thing with teaching, you know, it's like my favorite part of teaching is when I'm in the classroom with those, with those students. Mm-hmm. My least favorite times are when I'm in the staff room listening to other teachers complain. I'm like, I don't <laughs> want to be around that. You know, so sometimes I'm just sitting, I just sit in my room a lot. I put on a, I put on a podcast and uh, I just eat lunch in my room because I, I don't want to be around that negativity. I'd rather, right. I'd rather just sit back and, you know, I don't mind telling the kids, hey, keep it down. Hey, pay attention, you know, because mm-hmm. every now and then, you know, they do pay attention and you get to see this glimmer into what the future is. And it's pretty awesome. You know, I, I, this, this, this uh, eighth grade class I have right now is uh, probably my favorite class that I've ever taught. Wow. That's awesome. I was going to ask school. you, you know, now that you've been, you've been a teacher for 30 years, Yeah. T- tell me, you know, you hear, you know, you get old timers and you get all these people who are just worried for the future, right? They're like, oh, yeah. look at the kids nowadays. They're doing all this stuff. And yeah. I, think, I think some of the worries may be legitimate, but I mean, I'm sure the generation before us were thinking the same thing. So yeah. could maybe talk about how have kids changed in your mind over the last 30 years? Um. I think the biggest change I've seen is that I have less and less that I connect that I can actually relate to. And that's okay. <laughs> and I think, no, it's, it's like when I first started teaching, you know, I was 24 years old. I was the cool teacher and, you know, and yeah, I was the one with the guitars in the class. I was the rock and roll teacher. Oh, he's the one who wears the Converse all stars and spikes mm-hmm. his jet black hair, you know, and my jet mm-hmm. black hair came in a, in a tube of hair dye. <laughs> but, uh, but, I think the thing that's changed is like, as I've gotten older, I have less and less that, that we connect to each other on, but, but then at the same time, you know, I got a kid who I get one of my, one of my favorite students, he comes, I absolutely adore this kid. He's like, Hey, Mr. Noso, I want to show you something that I, I brought from home. He reaches into his hoodie he brings out a Walkman, a cassette Walkman. <laughs> nice. And I'm like, please say there's a tape and there. It's like, Oh yeah, it's a really good one too. And, Pulls out the tape. I'm expect. I had. I have no idea. It's an old in excess tape. Oh wow! Nice. And I'm like, do you actually listen? He's like, yeah, I love this song. And so like, so it's like, granted, he's listening to oldies mm-hmm. in his mind. I'm listening to stuff that I listened to in high school. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, yeah. but, but I think the biggest, the biggest, the biggest uh, change that I've seen in kids over these thirty years is that. They, they're a lot more aware of their surroundings than, than older generations give them credit for. Mm. They just may not, they just may not be acting the way that you want them to act, but they, they pretty know, they know what's going on. Mm. They know that they know what's right and what's wrong. Mm. And, um, 
they get upset at the at things that they should get upset at. And they're, they're, there's more kids that are willing to stand up for what's right than, mm. than, than not. Mm. And so maybe I'm a little too Pollyanna about it, mm -hmm. but I really do have a lot of faith in, in this generation, whatever, whatever the name of the generation of kids that's right. between, that's between eighth grade and high school, whatever that generation is, I've got a lot of all the kids that I've taught in eighth grade. I think my first class that I taught in eighth grade just graduated high school last year, but that whole generation of, of, of young people, they're, they're going to be okay. We're, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Do you uh, teach specific subjects then? Uh, social studies, literature, and language arts. They have a different teacher who comes in and does, I teach at a Catholic school, so they have a different teacher who comes in and teaches religion, different mm -hmm. teacher who teaches math and science. But I, mm -hmm. I teach social studies. So we're in social studies, we're talking about early American history. And oh, so wow. kind, of, kind of showing them how things have, really haven't changed. You know, when John Adams, before he left the presidency, he tried to stack the Supreme Court Let's right. fast forward. Let's yeah. fast forward uh, right. later on in the 21st right. century when the same thing kind of, and so we kind of talk about the similarities. And sometimes kids are interested, sometimes they're not. Then in literature, we're reading Lord of the Flies right now. Oh, wow. And, uh, and yeah, I just assigned the chapter where Piggy is killed. Oh, so we'll yeah. See how that, let's see how that yeah. goes over. Sorry yeah. for anyone watching it. That's a spoiler. Yeah. And then uh, <laughs> language art just basically trying to teach them how to convey the thoughts in, in a in a legible manner. You know, it's funny you bring that, that up because I remember my son, you know, it, I, mean, I talk about him so much on these podcasts, but like <laughs> he, 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 he came home one day and he told me, or maybe we were driving somewhere and he, he said something along the lines of like, God, they just have all these papers they need me to write and all these things. And I'm just so sick of it. And I remember saying to him like, do you understand why they ask you to write? You, do you understand? Do you think they're just trying to make you like, yeah. You know, they're trying to make your life difficult. No, it's because the people like the people who write and speak and can can formulate a thought and put it down. Like mm -hmm. those are the people that change the world, you know? Yeah. Like I go, you know, it, it's people like Martin Luther King who says I have a I have a dream and can mm -hmm. speak that articulately that changes the world or yeah. Thomas Jefferson writing the you know, the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. yeah changes yeah. everything. And it goes, so, so when your teacher's assigning this stuff to you, it's because he's trying to train you because you could be the one, that, the next one to change the world, you know? Yeah, and, exactly. And exactly. Uh, I don't think that gets taught a lot from those people that complain all the time. <laughs> yeah. That, and I, and, and I try and let my kids know, it's like, Hey, you have this opportunity to put your, to make your mark, yeah. whether it's, whether it's, whether it's through music, whether it's through art, whether it's through literature whether no matter what you have an opportunity that don't 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 and and it's not something that's specifically just for younger people you know it's like you yeah. look at all the great classical music out there and then you find out that these composers were in their 50s and 60s when they wrote these pieces that have lasted yeah. hundreds of years right. you know so the, the the window for creativity isn't just for the isn't, isn't just for the kids you know right. Like right. message for the the old parts like me it's like that it was still wide open there's yeah. no, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no timestamp on when you, when you're allowed to create and, and, and leave your mark out there in the world. Well, and and I, I think, th I think people forget too, that you can, 
you know, I, I, I've tried to tell all of my kids too, that it's okay to fail, you know, yeah. like it's okay. You just have to be right one time, Yeah. <laughs> one time, right. you know, yeah. and, and that's, uh, uh, you know, like you, you, you mentioned your bands, you know, like, Oh, well, 25 years in gas money. Well, yeah. Okay. But now you're with the moans and that could strike it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, you, know, yeah. you never know. I mean, yeah. So, well, and then the other thing with the, with secretions, uh, how many times people would come up to me and say, yeah, my first punk rock show was seeing you guys. And, the, and yeah. you know, it's like, they speak to that the same way that you were talking about seeing the British Bulldogs versus the dream team, right. the way that I would talk about seeing uh, playboy buddy Rose versus Keto Santana. Right. <laughs> and you know, it's like, and they're talking about their first punk rock show and we're talking about our first wrestling show. And the, those are moments that we created. You know, it's like, and I'll, I'll, I don't take that for granted or just dismiss it just because that band's no longer together or, oh, we don't, we don't talk to each other. We're not a band anymore. So I don't dismiss, you know, that moment that I, that, that, that band had an opportunity to create for some people. And, and I hope, and I hope that, you know, I got to meet Playboy Buddy Rose once later on. And, oh, nice. and I hope that he knows how important that moment was when, when he told me to shut up because I called him a big fatty head. Yeah. And how I was just like, in my seven-year-old self was just like, oh, this giant just yeah. told me to shut up. And then I remember telling him that story. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, no, 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 no. You created a memory that lasted a lifetime. And you taught me everything about professional mm -hmm. wrestling that night and how powerful it is and how awesome it is and yeah. how you have that opportunity. I, I, there's not a single time that I don't step out through the curtain and don't think of that, that I don't think that like, you have that opportunity to create a lifelong memory. And what a great gift that is. And no yeah. matter what you're doing, you know, it's like those ma that match that you had with uh, with Big Money that you said, you know, you crapped the bed or whatever. Guess what? There was probably some kid in that audience who saw their first wrestling show and they remember that match or they yeah. remember whatever. And maybe you don't want them to remember that match. Yeah, but right. still, <laughs> right. They might remember a completely different match than you did. You had yeah. that opportunity to create that memory. Your son's got that, that opportunity playing music to create that memory for someone that's going to yeah. last a lifetime. And that's, yeah, I don't know, to me, that's, that's, that's what's, that's, what's really special. Isn't that interesting too? You know, you, I, I, I remember my dad and I, we went to, um, we went up um, to Tahoe years back, five, six years yeah. ago. You know, there was some guy running a show that, that the Reno boys were, were helping with, you know, Chupi yeah. and, uh, and Luster and those guys. And uh, anyway, they had done this whole big signing thing. They had been working with Kirk White, so they got all these names yeah. out there. And yeah. the two people that I remember, they had Jake the Snake there, and they had Bret Hart there, and they had Brutus Beefcake there the warlord like they had a bunch of people but what what really struck me was was um i got to sit i get to tell bruce beefcake i mean like you were my first match and i remember at that time and specifically like i was really young but things weren't going super great for my family you know at that point and mm -hmm. uh you know my my dad and i weren't super we weren't on super great terms yet you know yeah and yeah. uh and i was like and that was a memory that we had together you know wrestling was a memory we had together you were like the guy you know that, that started that and then at that same time my dad so I've, I've shared this publicly before my dad is 25 years sober he was he was a drug he he had an addiction issue and he yeah. has completely changed his life and has done great but when i think i was my senior year in high school 
maybe junior, senior year. Um, he was in rehab, and uh, um, uh, Bret Hart uh, was doing a signing at the Arco Arena, and my mom went there, and I remember at the time I was really mad because they only would sign one thing, right? Mm. And so um, she, I can't remember, she got me, I can't remember who she got me, I don't even have it anymore, but she got Bret Hart to sign for my dad and told him where he was. And he wrote this really nice note on it. And my dad got it. So when we went to that, to that thing, my dad took that to him and said, I'm 25 years sober, you know, or 20 years sober at the time. And he goes, I mm-hmm. want you to know how much this meant to me. And to him, it was just another, you know, it was just another yeah. Tuesday. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and that's the kind of effect. I think, I don't know, you know, the, um, there's a quote I heard that says, um, societies go great when men plant trees, um, the shade of which they're never going to sit in. And, uh, I don't, you know, we all have those moments, you know what I mean? We all have those moments where it, it, those, who knows if Bret Hart had been having a bad day, I don't know if it would have had any effect on my dad's recovery or not. You know what I mean? But thinking about that little, just signing his name there and saying something nice when all he was doing was signing everybody, named everybody else. And he actually put something really special to my dad that meant something. And so I think that experiences like that sometimes color the way I treat people, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, you can't uh, take, you can't take it for granted. You never know the connection that you're going to make with someone. And, you know, it's like looking back, I wish I, treated people differently. I wish I appreciated people more when I had the opportunity, but all I can do is the regret of, I wish I did things differently, or I wish I treated people differently, or I appreciated people differently back then. The only thing I can do is have that impact how I treat people now and how, how much I appreciate people now. And um, that's, I think, I think taking the time to look back on things like that, it's really important to look back on your own life and things like, okay, where I've been, what I've, who I've, where I've been, what I've done, what I wish I could have done differently, but that's just the way things are. But how, how can that impact what I'm doing today? What I'm, what I'm going to be doing this weekend or next weekend, you know, um, that's all we can do is just let our past kind of not define us, but help guide us in, 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 in where we are today. And, and, and I think that's a great gift that, you know, whether it meant a lot to Bret Hart or not, that's still a great gift to say, hey, you did this little thing and that made a big, big impact on me. Maybe that, that kind of for a brief second there, Bret Hart probably thought, wow, you know, I do have that ability to lift someone's yeah. spirits, you know, just by signing my name, just by being the hitman, Bret Hart. Yeah. At one of these autograph signings, you know, I'm sure it's just like, okay, signing, 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 giving my paycheck. Now, but then to realize, wow, you know, you do yeah. have that opportunity to make those connections. There. Yeah. And you don't have to, you know, I think the thing is interesting is you don't have to be Bret Hart. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I did a, I did an earlier podcast with a, with a young man, uh, his name's Sonny Smith. And uh, he, uh, I've known him since he was 12 years old. We went to church together. I was, okay. uh, I was on charge of the men's group when he was there preparing to go on a mission for the church and there when he came back 
Mm-hmm. And he he came on the podcast to share his story about he he has gender dysphoria and so he mm-hmm. he's uh he's transgender. Uh, he okay. he believes that he should have been born a woman, and he shared the story uh, coming from his earliest age, and it's it's a long podcast, like three hours long, but mm-hmm. he 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 told the whole story and he talked about how when he told certain people how they adjust, how they treated him and how other people mm-hmm. treated him, how he went to the military for a while, how he was treated there and all these different things. Mm-hmm. And then he told me he, he tried to, he, he decided to transition into being a woman and then decided that wasn't right for him and went back to being a man and just the struggle he had gone through. And he had some other mental health issues too. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. uh, but I remember thinking after I ended the podcast and just kind of reflecting on what I just heard, I was like, I've known this guy since he was 12 years old and I never knew. I never knew he had that war going on in his head. You know what I mean? And I was like, and then I started thinking because I would teach lessons at church and I would sit there and I think to myself, I'm like, if I had known he was sitting there and if I had known he was dealing with this, I might've taught that differently. It had a profound effect on me because I'm like, why do I have to know to teach it differently? You know? And I was just like, you know, who knows? You could... You could be talking to somebody and everyone's going to have a bad day. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you're not, you're not yeah. going to be nice to everybody. And quite frankly, yeah. there's people, if I saw them today, I wouldn't be nice to them. But, yeah. but like, you never know when somebody's teetering on the edge. Yeah. And I, and just a, you know, they're just dying for an encouraging word. You know? Yeah. It's just yeah. Like, that was a recent episode, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was about probably about a month, four or five episodes ago. Okay. He, yeah. I remember. He, he was a he's an impressive guy. I don't think I've had anybody come on more vulnerable than him because wow. he just he was so honest and he spoke at the end to other members of my church, you know, being a member of the of the Mormon church who might mm-hmm. be dealing with that with the same issue and yeah. And uh was really great. You know, those are the best podcasts. The ones where people come on like and, and they just are honest and vulnerable about, you know, you get some people on there that are a little guarded, you know, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and so they're, they're real careful about what they're saying. Another thing that was interesting about just talking about podcasting is the last podcast I did was with this guy, John, who um, he's, he's, uh, well, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I came away not quite knowing how he would identify sexually somewhere in between bisexual and gay, but he's, he's Mormon. Okay. And if you know anything about the church, you know, that's, uh, it doesn't quite jive, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and he shared, it, it was funny because he shared his story and, you know, he was married to a woman and then he, there was some infidelity with men. And so mm-hmm. she divorced him and, and he has some addiction issues and things like that. And he ended up, you know, he's married again to another woman and working all that out, I guess, in his head. But, but the thing that I found so funny is, is that I noticed that there were certain parts of the story. I don't think it came across in the podcast, but there were certain parts of the story where I found my own biases based on what he was saying mm. bothered me. You know, like I was, uh, I was not super stoked with the way he was, he was talking about it. And I, and yeah. I, uh, you know, particularly when it came to, you know, his divorce and kind of, I felt like he was maybe blaming blaming the wife a little bit, like, you know, for leaving him. And I was like, what? you're gay, you know, (laughs) you know, and so I I was a little upset. And then we talked about the addiction, you know, some of the issues he had relating to porn addiction. 
I was a I was a little I was a little bothered by some of the things he said there, and and I remember afterwards I was I had kind of a visceral reaction afterwards like you know this guy these things he said I wasn't a big fan of and then I realized I was like you know what it's not fair of me to put my my biases on him mm -hmm. like I don't know his story or where yeah. John is coming from I don't know what it's like to be a a member of the LGBTQ community as mm -hmm. a Mormon and how that fits. If I'm going to ask all these people to listen to my podcast and listen to all these variety of different people with an open mind and try to understand yeah. where people are coming from, I got to do the same thing, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so, and so, but that's what I love about this podcast is that I get to have people like you on and, and have, you know, and, and hear like your influences and how cool it is. Like, I just think the reason I wanted you on was because it's so cool that you are so multifaceted. Uh, you know what well, I mean? Thank you. Thank you. You know? Well, that's a nice way of saying I spread myself pretty thin. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know how that goes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's. It, I know how that goes. But it's just so fun to watch, like, watch you. Uh, going back to that show in 2003-ish, uh, um, the other thing I remember about El Flaco Loco was there was a little group of kids there. And you and 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 Flacco was right in the middle of those kids cheering on it, you know, all the other wrestling matches. And yeah. I just thought I was like, you know what, that's cool because you know, a lot of the wrestlers they don't they wouldn't go out there and cheer for all the other guys. You know what I mean? Like yeah. get all stoked about it. And you were just right there and uh I just love that, you know. Yeah, well I mean it's it's an experience. It's the experience yeah. of it all. And um I don't know. It, I don't know how much time we have, but uh, when you were advertising for the for this podcast, you uh, mentioned my uh, my my health uh, yeah. my health adventure yeah. of, yeah. of uh, being a brain tumor survivor, and I think dealing with that it, it, it was the toughest thing for my my jaded punk rock heart to deal with because it turned me into a hippie for lack of a better <laughs> term. It, it it made me really stop to pause and was like, you know, wow, life is really really precious and you know yeah. when um the type of brain tumor i have it's called an acoustic neuroma um mm. and it's it's a it's a non-cancerous tumor but it does grow and mm. um the type of uh radiation therapy that i had to stop the tumor from growing it's not it's not chemo it's not chemo but it's it's pinpointed radiation that just stops the tumor from growing so the tumor's still in there mm. uh and and it's it's still inside my skull, but and I, I go in every year for an MRI to, to just see if it if it's growing or not, and if it if it is continuing to grow, then they have to go in for surgery, and that can be you know brain surgery is no no yeah it's no, not no laughing matter, but yeah. but point being when I was dealt with that, and that was a that was a tough deal for me because I lost my father to brain cancer, and so oh, when I hear wow. tumor brain tumor, I'm like, oh, I think that meant, you know, even though it's not cancerous, you know, the, the, the brain cancer community welcomed me in was I was doing, and I was dealing, and I, I felt like I was dealing with a kind of, a, um, you know, I, I shouldn't be complaining about my journey when I have this person who's going through something much, much, much more dangerous than, you know, mm -hmm. they they have brain cancer. I have a brain tumor not cancer it's benign but it's still you know it could still be fatal sure but uh i felt you know i felt like i was dealing with false valor you know you know yeah. kind of but they but the the brain cancer community 
was so welcoming and so supportive. It's like, and they basically said, no, you're one of us. You're one of the cool kids now, Danny. And so um, my friend Liz, who was just such an amazing, amazing source of support. And, um, and it was one of those things that it, it made me stop to really appreciate what I got, appreciate what I've had and the opportunities I've had, the adventure that I've had in this life. Yeah. And just what a, you know, and it really makes me wish, man, I wish I can go back and just, not that I, I don't know if I would do things differently, but I would just appreciate things more and I would appreciate the people. And there's so many people I'd want to go back and thank and give them a hug and just say, thank you for this. Thank you for that. And I, I felt like I, you know, in the past, maybe I, I, I took too much for granted and I didn't really appreciate it, but there's nothing wrong with looking back and appreciating what you have, but I just, it's a much better feeling of appreciating what's right in front of you, yeah. you know? And so, um, and yeah. fortunately I have that with wrestling and I still have that with music. I have that with teaching in the classroom. I have that with, with, uh, I have that with a wife who puts up with me, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like appreciating what I have. And, um, and I think when you're dealt with, uh, when you're dealt the cards of, you know, with the, like a brain tumor where you're like, well, who knows what next year is going to look like? Who knows where I'm going to be, what my health is going to be, what condition I'm going to be in. So I better, better appreciate what I've got right now and appreciate the people that I, that I get to, that I get to be around. So I think that's, that's an important thing. Do you still have any symptoms uh, that are associated with the tumor? Yeah. um, uh, So I, I, I've lost all hearing on the right side. Uh, I've, Pretty much for the past, uh, I was diagnosed with this seven years ago, mm. seven years ago. And I pretty much, I, I deal with a headache 24 mm. hours a day. And, mm. and so I've had a headache for the past seven years, oh, uh, but you know, you get used to it. I got, even though I'm deaf in my, in my right ear, there's a constant ringing and it mm. always feels like, you know, when you get water in your ear, it always yeah. feels like that. So it also feels like I want to get water yeah. out of my ear. Um, uh, balance. I deal with balance issues. So sometimes uh, the wrestling training and wrestling moves, uh, I can get disoriented because I, uh, I lose balance uh, oh, fairly yeah. easily. Like you do not, you, you know, do enough of those rolls, no matter what. Yeah. Get well, sick. yeah. I mean, and you do the, yeah. you do the training, you do the training at Manticore. And it's like, yeah. you do a couple of, you know, when I do a, a couple of rolls or when I'm helping train uh, and having students do a couple of rolls and I want to show them, all right, here's how, here's how I want you to go into it. And I get up and I'm like, well, where am I? Yeah. For a second. So, yeah. so a few times, uh, uh, so balance, hearing headaches. Um, that's, that's pretty much what I'm dealing with now. Yeah. And, um, and that's a lot, it's a lot. Yeah. And, you know, but like I said, I go in for MRIs. Uh, it used to be every six months. Now it's every year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they, they just measure the, the tumor to see if there's been any growth. And so far for the past seven years, since I did the radiation, the, it's been at bay. It has not mm. grown at all. What was the first sign to you that you, you had something going on? What got you to go to the doctor? For the loss of hearing, uh, loss of hearing. My wife telling me you need to go get hearing aids because, yeah. and I attributed, you know, years of playing loud punk rock music without, sure. you know, I'm not going to put it earplugs in. That's a cheater way of doing it. Right. That's the way I thought. <laughs> so I thought that I just lost my hearing. You know, I felt like I went to a motorhead concert, but only in my right hand side. Right. So, when they went in to do the hearing testing, they said, you know, was so I'm like, all right, I don't care if I get a hearing aid at, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, they said, well, it's, 
if your hearing was gone, it should be gone on both sides. And on your left side, it's hearing still pretty good. Right side, it's not good at all. So they wanted to do an MRI to see what, if there's anything going on. And that's when they discovered the tumor. And I had, and at, at that point in my life, I'd already lost my father to brain cancer. So when I hear brain tumor, yeah, I, you know, it, I how, just thought the worst. How long did it take before you learned it wasn't cancerous? Uh, right away, when I found out oh. the type of tumor it was, and but I mean, you hear brain tumor, you think cancer, but yeah. there's so many, so many different, uh, there's so many different types of tumors, and um, and uh, this type of tumor, um, it's benign, but because a tumor is benign, doesn't mean it doesn't grow or that it's not bad. Right, uh, right. It just, it's, uh, it's, uh, it grows. And if it grows to the point where it causes too much pressure, it can be fatal. And mm. there have been people who've died of acoustic neuromas or vestibular mm. schwannomas, whatever. Anything that ends in oma is bad. Yeah. <laughs> Not good, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so naturally, I, you know, I went through a really dark period of depression, and um, and I tried to document it all in these little video blogs. And I go back and I watch, and it's hard for me to watch. Uh, the dark that that dark period of my life where i just yeah. really felt like well what's the purpose why yeah. why even try anymore and, you know my life has completely changed it's going to be different now and uh, um fortunately i've gone i've gotten through that and thankfully to some wonderful scientists at stanford university a method of uh delivering radiation to pinpoint a tumor to stop that tumor from growing was developed here in in, in california and uh um, prior to that, the way that they would they would uh, administer the radiation is they would drill holes in your head and attach this big metal ring, and you'd have to they would administer the radiation that way. But fortunately, they didn't have to do that. They <laughs> they, uh, they thanks thankfully the the it's called the cyber knife therapy, and um, and so um, yeah, thankfully, thankfully uh, I thank God for the wonderful. Uh, scientists and doctors and you know science nerds and science geeks that that developed this method to um to uh to treat brain tumors and yeah. so um you know i've always uh i've always felt like when i got to the point where i can talk about my own brain tumor story that if someone out there feels like hey well this guy's still doing X, Y, and Z, even though he's dealing with this, you know, that, if that can just maybe be just a small source of inspiration, that would be, that would be great. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a, a couple of questions about that. It, what, what, what was it that, that pulled you out of the dark place? I mean, initially my wife, mm. um, knowing that no matter what she was going to be there, um, I think finding something within myself, just saying, you know what, this, this is, this is the cards I'm dealt with. And I just have to do, I have to keep living my life. You know, I have to, the, the brain tumor has to live with me. I don't have to live with the brain tumor. And, and right. it was just, I think I had to go through that dark period to, to get through. You know, you have to go through that, that, that hallway, that dark hallway to get to the door that leads to the outdoors. Mm -hmm. And I had to go through that. And um, I think it was taking the time I stopped feeling sorry for myself and I took the time to start appreciating what I had. Number one is that I've got 
the most solid rock of a wife that I could ever have hoped to, to have. You know, I'm, I, I'm one of those guys who married up you know? mm-hmm. and, yeah. uh, and, uh, and she was, the, she was the, the biggest source that got me through it. And then, then taking the time to really go, you know, not giving up on music, not giving up on, on wrestling, not giving up on teaching and just approaching it with a, with a new passion. And it's like, you know, you never know how long I can be able to do this. You know, you never know. I might, who knows where I'm going to be next year with this, who knows what's going to happen. And so I may as well appreciate what I have. And I think just having, just doing a 180 or stop feeling sorry for myself. And instead of doing a why me, I'm like, okay, this is what I've dealt. I'm, these are the cards I've dealt with. Make the yeah. best of it. Yeah. So, do you, do you can you pinpoint uh, anything in particular that helped you get there? Where you're like, you know what? These are the cards. I'm dealing. I'm just going to deal with it. Was there? Did it just all of a sudden snap one day, or was there something that pulled you out of it? I think having I did a. It's, I think it's still up online. I had a website called braintumorfighter.com and I had these video blogs and I, and I was putting blogs up pretty regularly and then I stopped. I stopped. So I think the last update I did was like three or four years ago. I think going back and documenting that and then going back and watching and seeing I'm not there anymore. I don't, I'm not that sad. I'm not that sad. I'm in a better place than I, and I think looking back and seeing how low I was, and realizing I'm not that low anymore. That yeah. means I'm up, I'm on the upswing. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really important. You know, it was like why it's important to keep a journal, why it's yeah. important to document things and like write things down, either write things down or record yourself just talking. And it, and it was just me talking to, mm-hmm. to my computer monitor and just, yeah. I don't know why I was doing it. Maybe I, I was thinking maybe I can reach someone. And I, and I actually, made a connection with a gentleman who had the same type of brain tumor in Australia. And I did an interview with him and uh, we had talked to each other. And um, I don't know why I just felt like documenting it. Yeah. And I think going back and watching it. So if I had to pinpoint, maybe it was the time that I just sat there and I rewatched some of the, my old uh, video blogs and I just realized I'm in a better place right now yeah. and I'm happier. I'm more con- not, I'm just more content and I'm more, I'm more accepting of what, what my life is. Mm-hmm. And do you, th- do you think that that, um, that, uh, that experience has helped you with this idea of living in the moment and doing those things? I mean, I do, I do, I do. Yeah. I, I, and it sounds, you know, seven years ago, I never would have said this, but having a brain tumor has been the biggest blessing of my life. Mm. It really has, you know, and you know, I always, um, I, you know, when they say God has a reason, you know, yeah. God has a reason for everything. And, you know, and it's like seven years ago, why, why this, why this, right. why, why am I dealing with this? Yeah. This is why, this is why, because you spent, you had all these great experiences in your life. You've traveled all over. You've done so much. You've, you've got to do things with minimal talent. You know, three chords on a guitar, you know, one beat on drums, and you've got this opportunity to travel all over and meet so many people and play on so many stages you're physically you're very limited but you've had an opportunity to do so much in the world of wrestling and it and and i think i think a greater power said hey you need a reality check of just how blessed you've been Mm -hmm. and maybe you need you need this this little bump in the road to stop and take a look around 
You know, I was driving down that highway. I needed that bump in the road to stop and go, wow, look at the scenery. Look at everything yeah. around me. Look at this weather. Look at the beautiful, the beautiful uh, landscape. Mm-hmm. And I, I really do think, um, you know, it was a blessing. Yeah. It was a curse at first, but then I think realizing it's a blessing and it's let me realize that, you know, not every, you know, you know, all those things like tomorrows aren't guaranteed, you know, it's like sometimes you need, sometimes you need a, you need a, a, a bump in the road to realize that. You know, that's, you hit, you, you struck a chord with me and that's, uh, I really appreciate you saying all that because, you know, it's really easy. It's, well, it's not easy. I guess what I'm saying is I've, I've noticed in my own life, whenever I was going through something really difficult, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've always come out of it and looking back, I'm like, man, that thing really needed to happen to put me in such yeah. a better position than I was beforehand. Right? Yeah. But then when you're in something that's dark, you can't see mm-hmm. that light. And there's no, there is no there is just a level of faith where you got to take that leap out into the darkness mm-hmm. and just hope that you you know, my aunt one time said, it's like you, you trust God and you jump out, uh, mm-hmm. jump out into the darkness and find that there's a feather bed, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm sure, you know, I, a lot of my friends struggle and I struggle quite a bit at times. And, uh, you know, there's somebody probably listening to this, that's going through something and it's easy to say, but mm-hmm. when you go through it, just know that you're going to, there's, just as sure as the night comes, so does the so does mm-hmm. the light, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And so it's uh and when it does, you'll look back. Uh I had a person tell me one time in a in a, in a blessing, say one day you'll look back on all your footsteps and realize that everything was over everything was overruled for your best good. And I've I've believed that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh everything that's happened. You know, we all have those things in our past that we that happened to us that we have no control mm-hmm. over, yeah. and uh, and how we react to it is so important. So it sounds like you've reacted beautifully. You know, well, I like I said, I think there was some there was a there was a reason why yeah. why I why I was blessed with this brain tumor, yeah. um, and and it you know, like I said, seven or eight years ago, I never I saw it as a curse. Mm-hmm. And now I see it as a blessing because of the outlook it's given me towards life. And um, I still screw up. I still take things for granted. Um, but I'd like to think that I'm better at appreciating things mm-hmm. than I was 25 years ago. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, um, in the classroom, uh, on the on the stage with the guitar in my hand, or on the stage sitting behind a drum set, or you know, jumping around a squared circle in spandex. You know? <laughs> um, but, but, and most importantly, on the wrestling side of things, and you, I'm sure you can relate to this, sitting in that locker room. Because yeah. that's, that's when the beauty of a wrestling show, that's where the beauty of a wrestling show really is, is in that locker room, the camaraderie, the laughter, the jokes, the creativity. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, only a yeah. small group of people uh, who like wrestling, involved with wrestling know what that's like and um you know and uh, i feel like i you know i really could have done a better job of appreciating what i had you know back in 2000 Mm -hmm. and uh fortunately i'm i'm working at a place that 
those shows in that same building and that vibe is just the same. And, um, you, you know, I guess, it now. I, I, boy, I do, I do. And yeah. I do appreciate the, the, the guys and girls that are involved with, with all of the wrestling that I've, that I've done for the past two, two, three years where I've come back and been involved. Um, I sure do appreciate them. Yeah. Real quick, before we, we wrap up, I want to talk about your, your cancer benefit shows. So yes. you do, you do that yearly, right? Yeah. Every year for my birthday, it's called the F cancer series. Right. <laughs> and I know that, I know that limits the amount of uh, promotion that I'm able to do by calling it that. I started doing, I started doing it a long time ago. I just wanted to do a birthday show for myself at this venue called the Capitol garage a long time ago. And so I rented out the Capitol Garage and I did a birthday show for myself. I had a bunch of my friends' bands play and it was just, I wanted to make a free show. So I paid for the venue, paid for the sound, and I just wanted people to come party for free. And then I wanted to do it again the next year. And then what had happened is a friend of mine who was a, a very pivotal person in my upbringing in the local music scene, his name, was Jay, his name is Jay Oniskin. Mm-hmm. He had been diagnosed with cancer. And so I wanted to do this as a benefit show for him. He was living in Japan at the time. And so... Hey, um, get get a few bands together. We can raise like three or four hundred bucks, and I'll send it over to Jay so he can take care of medical bills or whatever. And so we decided to call it F Cancer, and mm. and I made a little flyer that we gave out at shows that talked about Jay and why why we're raising this money. And then every year we would start doing it. They were just little fundraisers for my friend Jay, and then um, and then I started doing them for the American Cancer Society just started doing these fundraisers because they started getting bigger and bigger. And so it's like, Hey, you know, we're making a couple thousand dollars. Let's, let's, you know, uh, mm-hmm. we'll send it to the American cancer society. And then when my father was diagnosed with cancer, um, I, you know, I definitely wanted to keep calling it F cancer because I was really upset. And, you know, and yeah. people ask, why don't you call it something else? I'm like, no, because I'm because seriously F cancer. And there's a group in, in Los Angeles that has that that has that name and they and it's not associated with it. I just call the shows that just because I it just it's been such a cathartic experience to like do these shows and have people come up to me and tell me their cancer. So you know, tell me, you know, I lost my mom to cancer, I lost my brother to cancer, I lost my dad to cancer. And and it's kind of like a cool celebration for them. And at some of the shows I'll, I'll get like a couple of poster boards and people can write messages or bring pictures and put them up there and just like a little, little mo- memorial board. And it's, it's one of the crummy things is we all have a cancer story. We yeah. all have a cancer story. We have all been yeah. affected by someone um, with cancer and yeah. we've all been affected by losing someone or having a friend who has lost someone to cancer. And, mm-hmm. and so those shows are such a, it's a great way for me to celebrate my birthday. It's a, the first week of November, I just do a series of shows. Um, I'm thinking this year, um, I'm friends, my friend, Keith Lowell Jensen, who mm. that, that'd be a great person for you to have as a guest. He, yeah. boy, that guy's hilarious. Um, I want to get him and Dave Touchstone to do uh, one of the nights to be a comedy night. So stand up okay. comedy. Yeah. And then, then usually I have uh, bands, shows, and then who knows, maybe we'll, I can, uh, I can talk Good. to Action Coast and Next Level and, and Total do Wrestling, a, do a wrestling and get show. all those, do a, do a big super show. You know, they just did, they just did one down the Central Valley with a bunch of, with like four promotions yeah. and you can do one up here oh, and do it as a I'd part of the that. fundraiser. Yeah. Oh, so great. there we then we get Manticore to come out yeah. there. 
Oh, absolutely. That would be fun. Absolutely. That would be fun. Yeah. So it's just, it's just been something, it's just been something I, I, I enjoy doing for my birthday, just putting together shows and raising money for the American Cancer Society. And it, it started off as just getting together with friends and then it turned into, evolved into raising some money for a friend and then raising some money for an organization that I really believe in. And then I, I think about my dad every year that I yeah. do it. That's great. Wow. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to ask you a couple of questions I ask everybody before we before we take off. All right. First I'm ready. question, what what would you say is your biggest success? My biggest success. Um, I would say <laughs> this is going to be kind of weird. Um, one of my one of my coworkers is a former student of mine. Oh, wow. That's one of my, I would say that's one of my business. And, you know, I never read. I, Mr. Per, if Mr. Perot sees this, you know, it's like, yeah. he's one of my biggest successes. And, you know, I don't really, it's like, he's, he's, he's my kid's math teacher and he was one of my former students. So noticing, knowing that like some of my students turned out to be pretty awesome people. Um, yeah. I've other students who are um, involved in music, involved in film. Um, mm. I've got a couple of my former students who are independent filmmakers. Um, that's awesome. So I think that's, I think I'd say, and Mr. Pro is an example. So I think my biggest success is seeing my former students uh, just kick butt. Yeah, that's awesome. So what do you think, uh, would you say is your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? My biggest failure, um, I think going back to what I was saying, um, taking a lot of things for granted, um, mm -hmm. going back and just realizing, man, I, you know, how many people can say they, they've toured the U.S. five or six times only knowing how to play one beat on the drums or knowing yeah. all, only how to play three chords on the guitar. How many people can say they were flown to Europe to do a full European tour, only mm -hmm. playing three chords on the guitar uh, or flown to Hawaii or flown or, or played Mexico twice or gone all over Canada with very little or how many yeah. people can say, yeah, I've wrestled in front of a thousand people, a thousand people and I can I'm not very athletic. Yeah. So I think my biggest failure is, um, just you know not my biggest failure was uh my pre-brain tumor <laughs> like yeah. you know of just like yeah. not taking not not really not really appreciating things yeah so last question that i have uh so everybody at some at some day is going to pass away we hope it's yeah. you know 30 years from now for you or something like that 30 40 yeah. however long it takes and uh um, when that happens, there'll be a funeral and someone will give a eulogy. What's the one thing that you hope someone would say in your eulogy? He wasn't as much of a jerk as you might think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like to come across as a grouch and, a, you know, kind of a pessimistic and jerk like that. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Just, well, you know, know I got, I got hey, hey, you know, I, I would like it if someone said, you know what, I was having a really crummy day. And he made my day a little better just by being well, who he was. Well, you know what's funny? I'll tell you this, Danny. There, there. You'll you'll appreciate this. Uh, there are not a lot of people in wrestling that you can say this about, but you are one of them. And that is that I have never heard anyone say a bad word about you. Oh, you just I mean, don't enough people, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, well, like, every, I, 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 I appreciate. It. Everybody I've talked to, you know, the people that I think of when I think about this is I think of El Flaco Loco and I think of Virgil Flynn. 
those are the two guys who like who literally I remember in fact I even remember one uh one wrestler well, I'll just say who it was it was it was Maynard Skinner telling me one time he said you know what he goes um I came I think he said he was at either DMW or SPW or something and he goes it's one of my first shows and he said and Flacco shows up and he just comes, shows up with a case of beer, puts it in the front, and just or puts it in the locker room, and just let everybody know after the show we're all friends and we're going to share that beer. And he goes, and it meant so much to me because nobody was really like being nice to me, you know, at the time. And Flacco was, and that's the type of stories that I hear about El Flacco Loco, is that, you know, when everybody else is being a dick, because I mean, you know, wrestling, wrestling is full of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Every, everybody thinks that they're Hulk Hogan. And, uh, and you know, I've never heard a bad word. And you've always been super respectful. Even even when, you know, I was starting SWF and SPW was around and the, the people at SPW weren't necessarily super stoked about SWF being around. You were always super respectful to me. And I always felt like you were approachable and I could talk about talk to you. And I really appreciated that. So. Well, I'll... I'll pass that message to Flacco and I'm sure he'll be very appreciative of it. Um, <laughs> now, um, when I got married, I had educators, musicians, uh, family members and wrestlers at the reception. And, um, my wife always, she always said, you know, your, 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 your musician friends, love you and all that your your family loves you she's like there but there's something about your wrestling friends it's like they are just they love you and you know that they will travel to the ends of the world for 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 you you know and it's not just for me they'll do that for everyone and there's just yeah. that there's something i don't know you can't put it into words just that connection of friends that i've made in the wrestling world that like i would do anything for them and I know they would do anything for me. And like at a drop of a hat, you know, there's been times where like even Big Ugly and I, maybe we haven't been getting along, but if I called him at two in the morning, he would be right at my doorstep there to help me out. And yeah. he knows the same thing that I would do the same thing for him. Yeah. And and those are connections that I'm sure people make in lots of in lots of aspects of their life. But for me, wrestling is where I made those connections. And um, yeah, just. I guess it's if when I die, I'm just hoping someone says eh, he wasn't that bad of a guy. Yeah, well, That's you definitely you'll you'll hear a lot. I'm, I'm sure there'll be a lot more than that. And so, <laughs> well, well, listen, Danny, it has been great. I I appreciate you taking the time to come and talk no. with me. It, no, the, I appreciate the, this. The coolest thing about this podcast is I get to have really cool connected conversations with people that yeah. I respected, and you're one of them. And so, oh, thank uh, you, thank you, Josh. I, I got to say, I, I'll tell you a regret I have, and that is that I, I when I was running SWF, never got a chance to book El Flaco Loco. And uh, and so... Well, maybe maybe you just didn't have it in the funds, you know? He's one of those guys, you know, if he's, got, he's got a certain set amount, you know, promoters yeah, got to well, prop up well, the it money. Wasn't, it wasn't that. I couldn't afford his handler. You needed a handler. And, <laughs> yeah, right. You know? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the bar tab, the, the rider, the beer tab. <laughs> yeah. like, where do we get all that booze? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, well, I, well, I look, I look forward to seeing you backstage at a wrestling show soon. Yeah, absolutely. We will. We definitely will. Anyway, our, 
All right, man. Well, hey, oh, oh, I'm supposed to tell people to subscribe. If you've made it this far, subscribe yeah. to the, the podcast. And uh, um, uh, thanks, thanks, Danny Reynoso, for coming on. And uh, you, know, you, you can much. check out you can, and buy buy the Moans uh, album and come yeah. to uh, come to Action Coast Wrestling or Next Level Pro and check out El Flaco Loco. Good friends with Danny. Yeah, and uh, and, and good so, neighbor of mine. Yeah, <laughs> and we'll uh, we'll see you guys all soon. All right.